Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. If you're new to the show, I'd like to say welcome. If you're a returning listener, I'd like to say welcome back. Before we get started, I'd just like to ask you a favor. If you're currently streaming this episode, would you mind stopping it and downloading the episode and then listening to it? It's a good way for me to keep track of the downloads. And to be honest with you, the more downloads I get, the more I get paid. I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind doing that. And maybe do it for all the content creators that you enjoy listening to. It's a great way for us to keep track of the downloads and put a little extra money in our pocket. So if I could ask you for one favor, that would be it. Now on to the show. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. The spinning, spinning, who's he going to go after? The pop drop, the pop right there goes right to King Blackson. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won mm-hmm. four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. This is Coliseum Chronicles The Penalty Box, your source for Islanders Enforcer Talk. Proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Joe Lazito. And welcome to episode 132, the continuation of my Off the Island series. And I bring you part two with Dave Marcin this evening. But first, social media. You know, I saw something today on social media, um, on X, where it said that uh, Elon Musk said there's, uh, at some point, there will be a fee to use X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, I will not pay to use social media, so for the time being, there is a link. There's a link to Twitter 
Facebook, and Instagram in the show notes. So if you'd like to connect with the show or myself, which is basically one and the same, hit any of those links, connect, and uh, and we'll be social media pals. But as I said, if they start charging for X, Twitter, I'm out. Um, as it is, it's um, a lot of nonsense. I mean, social media basically should have uh, parentheses and nonsense next to it. Um, I'm definitely not paying for it. But like I said, in the meantime, if you scroll down to the show notes, there are links there for my social media um, accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So uh, connect with me, and, uh, and like I said, we'll be pals. There's a link also for Islanders A to Z. That is the Islanders children's book written by Joe Bono and illustrated by the great Joe Marisich, the local Long Island artist who designed the logo for this very program. And if you have an art project and you're interested in getting one of the best to do it, to do it, go to Twitter and punch in at GraphicsJoker or go to loudegg.com and you can reach Joe that way. Tell him I sent you. I don't know if that's going to help at all, but uh, you'll definitely get a damn fine product when it's all said and done. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I am a member of the Hockey Podcast Network. A hundred plus shows on the network and every team has at least one show dedicated to it. This is an Islanders based program, although not lately. Well, I guess with the lost episodes, it balances things out, but, um, and, and I, I, <laughs> every episode I say, I have to get in touch with them and tell them to move my logo from the Islanders, from the team section to the original content section and I haven't done it yet. So who the hell knows when I'm going to do it. Um, but as I said, no matter what team you root for, there is a show for you. Um, I would definitely check it out on the original content side. Well, that's where you'll find the four horsemen of the hockey fight podcast genre. And let's begin. Let's go out west. Out west to the prairies, the fourth line voice with Darren. He is the elder statesman in the podcasting. but And he just had a birthday. Happy birthday, Darren. But he, I still have a few years on him. But as far as uh, podcasts go, he's the elder statesman. Uh, as far as tenure on the network goes, he's the elder statesman. Uh, hold on one second. And we're back. I was trying to hold in a sneeze for about three minutes. And that was a battle I had no chance of winning. And it basically said, all right, I'm going to just end the dance right now. And the sneeze came out. So uh, I paused it there for you. There's no reason for me to blow out your speakers with uh, with my dad's sneezes. But anyway... Getting back to Darren, um, he is the senior member in terms of tenure, in terms of uh, number of episodes. He's he's basically the old guy with everything except age. I do have him on that, and I'm happy about that, by the way. Um, Darren's latest episode, and, and he's got well over 300 of these. Uh, his latest episode um, was, I think it was the last list, from the hockey news top five and it was the top five current minor league enforcers and as darren was reading this list i'm i'm listening to it and i go i wonder if this guy knows about these guys or if he's just a fan of um the five for fighting youtube channel when it was around because 
I mean, I guess I should have said spoiler alert, but a lot of these guys have been mentioned uh, on the Five for Fighting podcast, which we'll get to in a moment, and on the Five for Fighting YouTube channel. So I wonder, I, I, I'm skeptical uh, if he's actually a fan, but uh, but it was a good list, but I'm just wondering if he's actually invested or if he just knows where to go for his information. Either way, good list. Also, Darren was sent a list. Oh, fantastic job so far in the intro. Uh, I had to pause again because now my nose wants to run. I'm the guy that when I sneeze once, then after that I have to sniffle for 45 minutes. Um, if you are of a certain age, you'll understand this reference. But I sneeze once, and all of a sudden I become Joe Pepitone. So, um, you know, it, it's annoying. So that's the first time I had to pause for the post-sneeze nasal drip. But I'll, I'll do my best to keep it going. I am really... Uh, stretching out the uh, the the fourth line voice uh, here, but uh, someone sent him a list of the top six all time minor league enforcers, and and Darren said it when he was reading it. I mean, the the AHL has been around forever, and and how do you really do that? Um, I have my Mount Rushmore, but there were guys that have played uh, before and after most of the guys on my Mount Rushmore. It's hard it's hard to say, but. Um, I mean, the names on the list were solid. It, it was actually a pretty good list. So um, as far as lists go, probably um, some of the better lists that he's uh, gone through on the episodes. I have to give credit to the guys who created that list. But uh, also he did his rapid fire questions with his uh, LNAH correspondent, Francois. Uh, very good, uh, very good answers. And um, I think this is Francois' second time on the show. And um, I don't know Francois, but I, I enjoy his appearances. So uh, so definitely catch that. Um, as I mentioned, the Five for Fighting podcast, Alex's latest episode um, was titled Walk the Plank. I, I talked about it uh, on my last episode. Um, talked about um, Alex's absence, and he goes into detail. Um, also on the episode, the, well, not also, the, the um, nuts and bolts of the Walk the Plank episode was the top five ECHL enforcers as voted by the fans. So definitely catch that. And um, it's got to be soon, five in a game. It's got to be coming back soon with Jordan. Uh, hopefully he's on the trek back. I don't know where he is, but um, with all the uh, with the new season starting up soon, hopefully uh, he'll be making it back. Uh, probably dodged a bullet with some of the storms out in, um, in the Maritimes this past weekend. But... Uh, while you're waiting, definitely uh, check out the back catalog for Five in a Game. Five for Fighting podcast, great back catalog. Fourth Line Voice podcast, great back catalog. And while you're listening to those shows, hit subscribe. Definitely leave a rating. And if you have a minute or two, definitely please leave a review. It definitely helps these small-time creators like we are. Um, I, I will say it till the cows come home. I'll put our content up against anybody. Uh, we just don't have the, uh, the cachet of, uh, some of the bigger names out there. But, uh, you know, for instance, I know, uh, John Morasti was just on business show and I didn't listen to it. So I can't say whether or not it was a, a great interview or not, but I know that, uh, Darren had, uh, John Morasti on a show a, a couple of seasons ago. And anything I needed to ever know about John Morasti, I found out in Darren's interview. So uh, not shitting on anybody, but uh, I would say that if I had to pick one of those to find out what I need to know about John Morasti, it would definitely be uh, Fort Line Voice. But please check out those three shows. 
uh, rate and review the shows and also check out the corresponding Facebook pages, Facebook. Holy fuck. All right. Well, they do have Facebook pages, but of course I meant YouTube. So check out the YouTube pages for those shows as well. I'm not sick. I sneezed once and the whole episode is in disarray right now, which doesn't bode well, but, uh, I'm, you know what? For you people, I'm going to power through. Anyway, as I as I said, I got to start that jar. Uh, Terry Ryan, the biggest wheel on the network, Tales with TR, uh, just had an episode with Andrew Peters. Now, full disclosure, I never really had an opinion on Andrew Peters. He was never anybody I met. Um, tough guy, very tough guy, but he wasn't someone that I was uh, a fan of or not a fan of. He was a guy that, that fought, and I respected him, but I didn't really have an opinion on him one way or another, but, uh, what an episode with, with TR great episode. I actually, uh, sent Terry a message and say, man, he, he was really good. And, um, you know, he has his own show with Craig Reve. I checked that out. So, um, I'm not going to say that I'm i I'm an Andrew Peters cheerleader now, but, um, I thought TR did a great job. So, um, I don't need to pump Terry Ryan's tires. If you're listening to this show, you know what Terry Ryan is. But, uh, you know, we got Shorzy season two coming out soon. Big things happening for Terry, and I couldn't be happier. So, uh, so definitely check out all of Terry's content. Now, excuse me, I didn't need, need, uh, mean to sniffle in your ear. Uh, as you know, if you're a regular listener, I collect game-used gear from enforcers, primarily the Islanders and the Nordiques. Um, but I will... Uh, I will definitely listen to anyone or about anyone. I would say no to maybe a handful of guys, but for the most part, no, I'm, I'm happy to add to the collection. And um, I added two sticks today and I'm going to get into that in a few minutes uh, when I have a topic I want to discuss. And I'm going to, I'm going to save that for, for that discussion. But if you have anything you're sitting on today's guest, Dave Marcinician, uh super guy, Unfortunately, he lives very far away, so if I wanted to go to his house and poach some gear, uh, it would take me a while. It can't happen. But if you have any Dave Marcinician items, you know, a stick or a pair of mitts or a lid or something like that, let me know. Maybe we can work out something uh, via trade or uh, exchange for goods or services. Um, yeah, so just let me know. I want to congratulate uh, Ryan Chizowski. Now, Ryan is the son of Dave Chizowski, who uh, who was a uh, repeat guest on this show, and Dave and I are, are, are pretty good pals. And uh, Ryan just signed with the Lehigh Valley Phantoms, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, definitely going to follow him, uh, follow his uh, doings there. And I think, you know, as I told Dave, and and I'm, I'm sure Dave knows, Flyers are a first-class organization. So, um you know, Ryan was playing with the Marlies last year. And, you know, hey, sports are weird. You never know. You just never know if the right eyes are on you one night or you put something together. You never know. And uh, I think uh, for a player like Ryan, if he's going to make the jump to the NHL, he's probably got a better chance in the Flyers organization than Toronto. Um, so, uh, you know, I just want to wish him well. And congratulations to Mr. and Mrs. Chazowski. Uh, you did very well. So, um I'm not going to talk for too much longer because I know that uh, I, I, I did a pretty long intro last show. Again, I'll apologize for the sniffles. Um, there, I touched on it the last episode, the, the controversy now with uh, Paul Bissonette and Mike Babcock. And now since the last episode, 
um, the resolution that has been reached was Mike Babcock resigned. I, I'm doing the air quotes, resigned from the Blue Jackets. And, uh, you know, Bissonette claims victory and everything. And there's a lot of people that are happy. And, you know, like I said, the the list of people who feel that they have been wronged by Mike Babcock is tremendous. And I say feel they've been wrong because who am I to judge? I mean, the, the evidence is certainly damning. Uh, definitely doesn't, doesn't bode well for him, but, um, you know, I guess, listen, I, I think if Mike Babcock is guilty of anything, well, guilty of a lot of things, but, Primarily, I think it's just stubbornness, and I don't know if I'm the last person to tell anyone to adapt. Okay, uh, I am the dinosaur. I am the last one that's going to adapt to anything. Um, now, if it's something to make a living, of course I have to support my family. I'm going to adapt to that. But um, I don't know if if Mike Babcock realized or wanted to realize or wanted to admit that. No matter where he went from here on in, he was going to be on a short leash. And maybe he didn't want to realize that. And with this thing with the phones and the pictures, you know, now some players are coming out and saying they didn't have a problem with it. And it appears that the players that did have the biggest problem were younger players. It's probably something they're not accustomed to. Uh, but now, you know, the story went from, well, he, he wanted to take, he wanted to, get the phone and go through the pictures himself to while we were having a talk about our families and he wanted to see some of the family pictures. So, you know, as, as usual, the first report, maybe not, maybe isn't the most accurate. And, you know, I know when I spoke about it, I had really only heard about, Hey, give me your phone. I want to go through your pictures, which I, I think is a no go, you know, for me anyway, Personally, like I said, I love my boss, but if you want to look at my phone, it's a hard no. It's not happening. Um, but if I'm if I'm meeting my boss for the first time and we're talking about families and he's like, you know, do you have any pictures of your family on your phone? Show me a couple. Well, I don't have a problem with that. I think what's ultimately the only people who really know how things went down are Babcock and the players involved. And... You know, but like I said, you know, Babcock was on a short leash. The slightest indiscretion was going to probably be curtains for him. And this is what happened. He didn't even make the first practice. So, um, whatever. But what I really want to talk about is, of course, now the writers. Uh, there's a guy, um, I think his name is his last name's Kennedy, but I'm not sure because then there might be two of them that work for the hockey news. But this guy that writes for the hockey news and he's he covers uh, women's hockey and actually I think the way he covers it, it it's sort of detrimental to women's hockey because he's sort of aggressive about it. I don't think he's realistic about it. Um, and he's a white knight as far as everything else goes. But people like him, um, as soon as this happens, then it's the white knighting going about. And it's all about hockey culture. And um, it, it makes me laugh. And this is this is what I want to talk about. So hockey culture, you never hear about this in other sports. But the stuff that you normally hear or associate with hockey culture, you don't think this stuff goes on. I mean, maybe not football because it's 
specialize, but, uh, you know, you have the road trips in basketball and you have, uh, you know, road trips everywhere, but there's not that feeder system in the NBA. It's college. Um, I guess the sport you can most compare hockey to is baseball, uh, with the minor league system and, and going through that. Um, but the thing that makes me laugh is yes, there are plenty of examples of absolutely horrendous, abhorrent, disgusting, disgraceful things that have gone on in hockey for decades. But what these people do, um, uh, there's the guy Westhead, I think he's famous for it. This guy Kennedy on the hockey news. It's, it's all these like parasites. I'm sure Damian Cox is one of them too. Um, they just lump everything together and it's hockey culture. Well, I don't think you could get away with that in real life. And I'll tell you why. So you want to talk about hockey culture. And, and so what happens is there's these incidents that happen. Okay. And, and like I said, they're absolutely disgusting, but it's, I don't want to say isolated incident because it sounds like one incident, but if you take the number of incidents, the percentage of those incidents to the percentage of players that are actually playing are small. Now, again, don't get me wrong. It's it's a case of one is one too many, and I understand that. But to me, when you say hockey culture, you're doing a disservice to all the good that hockey, the sport itself, that hockey players, people that work for teams, that they do. When you just want to broad brush hockey culture with all the negative things that happen. But you have to do that if you're one of these people, because then you just have to totally tarnish the sport. Because if you come at it with logic, it shoots holes in your argument. Okay. Um, so I'm going to speak from personal experience here. Um, you know, when I was talking about before, when I talking about collecting stuff, well, today, today's, um, Tuesday and uh, I had lunch with a retired pro player Jack Gregg he's um, he's here on Long Island and Jack, I mentioned Jack in my interview with Jimmy Mazza and if you're not familiar with with minors or you know fighting in the minors you may not have ever heard ever heard of Jack Gregg the player but you may know Jack Gregg here on the island because what Jack has done was since he's retired all he's done has become, to me anyway, the biggest name on Long Island for youth hockey. And he runs his, he has his own camp. He has his own clinics. Uh, players that have gone through his camps are now working for him as, as um, you know, pro athletes. You know, a guy like Jimmy Mazza, he, wor- he works for Jack. Okay. And, and I'm sure that Jimmy's not the only one. Okay. So what Jack has done and, and listen, it's a business. Okay. But there's a lot of choices out here on long Island. Hockey has blown up here on long Island. If you're on long Island, you know it. And I'm not talking about anybody in particular, but what happens when something blows up, you're always going to get people that are trying to take advantage. And here on long Island, there are hockey parents that do have a lot of resources and are willing to spend the money, hoping their kid becomes an NHL star, although the odds are against you. And there are people out there 
that have hockey camps and stuff like that that are interested in the financial gains first. And then you have someone like Jack, who this is his life. Jack is, he's selfless, he's unselfish. And Jack could have gone many different ways after he retired. But he's, I don't want to say empire, that, that's the wrong thing, but he's hes the guy. Like if my, if, if my kids were born in Philadelphia and they didn't come back here, I mean, they were, they were the right age to come back, but they, they really didn't have an interest in playing hockey. But if they did, I would have brought them right to Jack. It wouldn't have even been a question. I would have brought them right to him because he's, he's an established presence here on Long Island in the youth hockey scene. He's got a proven track record. He sends guys the the, the odds of guys making pro hockey are very slim yet somehow guys manage to make the pros after they go through camps with Jack and Jack is the kind of guy that he takes it to heart and he takes it serious and Jack is the guy that teaches your children not only the skills to play hockey but off ice skills and it's the kind of stuff that you will take with you for the rest of your life so that to me is an example of hockey culture. People like Jack Gregg. Um, people, I, I've been, I, I've been involved as a fan in hockey since I got my license in 1988. When I would start going to games and going to Marriott and meeting players, introducing myself, networking, things like that. So. Not involved. I'm not going to say I've been involved in the game. I'm not. I'm a hockey fan. Okay. But all these years, you know, over 30 years, okay, um, I have met so many great people in the game that to this day, I can still consider them very good friends. And, you know, if if you know me or you've listened to this program, you know some of the players that... I've spoken about, but I don't even mean players. I mean, people that have worked for teams. Um, I, when, when Jack was here today, we were talking about uh, Pat LaFontaine and um, Jim Johnson, who, who was a, worked in the Islanders front office for a while. Now he, he works hand in hand with Pat in Pat's foundation. And I said, it's no surprise that those two guys are working together because they're two of the nicest people that I've ever met in my life. Pat LaFontaine and Jim Johnson, that's hockey culture to me. Um, former PR director for the Islanders, Greg Boris, someone that that I met a long time ago that we still keep in touch via social media and texting sometimes. Greg Boris is hockey culture to me, okay? So it doesn't have to be guys that have played. My best friend in the whole world, my the friend I've known the longest, as you all know, is Dean Ewan. This is a, a guy who I I learned a lot from. Not just we met when we were both very young, but he had already he was married already. He had he had twin boys. Later he had a third son. He was a father long before I was. Uh, but Dean had a code, a personal code that that he lives by, and I learned a lot from Dean. Not only about being a father, but about being a man and. That's hockey culture to me. 
that's that's what hockey culture means to me the individuals in the game that you don't read about because they don't do stupid shit so kennedy's not going to write about them or westhead's not going to write about them okay but it's the individuals that make up this sport it's it's guys that i haven't spoken to now of course social media the world is smaller but even before that guys that i haven't spoken to in in five ten years and you you manage to hook up with them via social media or a phone call and you talk to them for 10 minutes and you're all caught up and it's it's there are so many good people in this game i know that i've helped out people involved in the sport and though and, and a lot of people have helped me out and it's something that i wouldn't trade for the world to be honest i have had so many positive experiences um, with this sport, with this game. I met my wife at an Islanders game. I met I met my wife at an Islanders game. She's a hockey fan. She's a rabid hockey fan. She's a, she's a way bigger fan of the game than I am now. And she can she could keep up with me when I was at my most rabid. She's she's a she loves the game. She's had the opportunity to meet a lot of players. Um, but again, that's it. You know, my kids have met a lot of hockey players. Um, I have I have an interview coming up with a former Buffalo Saber, and I reached out to Brad May uh, to get his get you know any you have any good stories about him, this and that. I sent him a text. He called me back on the golf course. He's like, I'm about to tee up, but I didn't want to message you. I want to tell you these two stories, great stories. And before we hung up, hey, how are your boys doing? Uh, Brad May is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Forget about what Brad May did for a living. This is one of the nicest people that I have ever met in my life. He just happens to have been a professional hockey player. And that's how we met. That's the hockey culture that means something to me. Okay. Um, And I can go on and on. I can go on and on. It's not just an Islander thing or an enforcer thing. Ask any Ranger fan who's ever had the privilege of talking to Adam Graves, one of the nicest humans ever. And and look into Adam Graves. His parents were foster parents. I, I forget how many people, uh, I, I get confused sometimes with foster parents and adoptive parents. So I don't know. I believe it was foster parents. But Adam Graves, Adam Graves gets his mindset and the way he lives his life from his parents. And ask anybody who's ever come into contact with Adam Graves just an amazing human being. So when I hear shit go down, like this thing with Babcock, and of course, then the vultures come out because now it's not a Mike Babcock issue. Well, this is hockey culture. We're going to attack hockey culture. I call bullshit. I call bullshit. I, you, you've heard me tell the story. The, the, one of the biggest personalities in the history of sports and especially hockey don cherry someone who was just treated like horseshit by the vultures because he said two words and then all the white knights came out okay nobody knows nobody wants to go back and look the first guy to ever champion women's hockey on a on a platform a huge platform was don cherry Okay. And Don Cherry, someone who I would give my left nut to meet. Okay. I've met a lot of people in my life 
I I pray to God I have the opportunity to meet him at some point before either one of us dies because it would just be like a religious experience for me. And I believe I've told the story and I, I was telling the story to Jack today. Um, for those of you who have my book, if you go to the back of the book and I, I do the acknowledgements and the thank you, thank yous, basically um, the uh, it was people who donated to I did basically a GoFundMe. I don't know if it was GoFundMe or, or another a similar thing. So anyone that donated anything got an acknowledgement in there. Uh, people that inspired me got in there and people who I admire were in there and Don Cherry was, was in there. And I went through a phase after my incident on the subway where I wanted to reach out to people who I think have made, well, who I know had made an impact on my life and just basically thank them because that day on the subway, I didn't think I was going to survive. And now I have the opportunity to reach out to people and say, thank you. And I sent Don Cherry a copy of my book. Now, this is Don Cherry. The guy must get a truckload of mail every day. Okay. Did I think he'd even get the piece of mail? I don't know. But I, I, this is a guy, he's Don Cherry. Even if he got the book, did I think he'd actually read it? I don't know. Who knows if he even had the time? And then I'll never forget the day I came home and I had a little slip in the mailbox that there was a package from um, CBC that I had to go pick up and I lost my mind. And I open it up and it's just these, you know, a signed book, a bunch of signed pictures, a Hockey Night in Canada uh, hats, um, a McFarland signed figure and, and, um, and a note, which I have framed right above the desk where I'm recording right now. Um, and I, I've posted it. So if you're if you're on my social media, I've posted it. And you see what he writes, and I'm like, holy shit, he read my book. Like, I, I, that's hockey culture. To me, to me, that's hockey culture. As I sit here in my basement and I look at the jerseys that I'm hanging up, and I look at I look at the equipment and I see the guys that that have made a difference in my life over the years. Every one of these jerseys that I have here, I have a, at least one story about each one of these guys that means a lot to me. And for some of them, I have 50 stories. Okay? That's hockey culture. You can try to be a fucking asshole and with every bad incident, lump hockey, lump the sport of hockey into this whole thing and just blend it all together because, because you're a fucking idiot. But what you don't realize is hockey culture is different to everybody. And I just, this is something that has been, been inside of me for about a day or so. The, this episode was supposed to come out Monday. I had family things I had to take care of um, over the weekend. And Monday, it, that really definitely took priority over anything I could do in podcasting. Uh, and then today is Tuesday. It's late Tuesday night. Today's my son's birthday. We had a little thing for him earlier. So now I have some time to myself. So I want to get this out. So, but it's been like inside of me, just trying to get it out. And um, for those, for those people that for every incident that happens that want to lump hockey, I'll do another one. I'll do another one right now. That means something to me. Um, today is also the anniversary of Todd Ewan passing away. And if you listen to my episode with Dean, 
the end of of the second part, he really gets into it about how people use Todd after his death for their own story, their own narrative, and that includes his widow, and that includes Gary Bettman. And again, it was the toxic hockey mentality of fighting that, that did him in, where nobody wants to understand that most of the day these guys aren't hockey players, they're human beings, and they have stuff at home, just like everyone else has. But it's easy to say, well, this was fighting that did this, and this was CTE that did this, where nobody wants to look a little bit deeper. So fuck you, everybody who used Todd's death to to promote their narrative, including the guy from the fucking athletic, uh, Myrtle. Fuck you, James Myrtle, who's all over hockey culture, that blocked me on Twitter when I challenged him about the article he wrote because I asked him flat out, you wrote this article on Todd, you slant it really, you really slanted it one way and you didn't even speak to everybody that you could have spoke to. And he, he's like, yes, I did. I did my due diligence. Well, no, you didn't. Anybody that has anything about Todd Ewan that doesn't speak to his brother who did the same job, well, then you didn't do your due diligence. Are you fucking kidding me? You Google Todd Ewan within the first three or four entries, it's going to say Dean Ewan. So you have a guy that's his brother, a guy that did the same job, and you don't even reach out to him. No, you don't reach out to him because it doesn't fit your fucking narrative. It's hard for you to do that because then you can't shit on hockey culture. So to all those people who shit on hockey culture, who can't take an individual incident and leave it as an individual incident, as an isolated incident, even if there's 10 isolated incidents, leave them at 10 isolated incidents because there's 2,000 incidents that you don't write about because they were great incidents. That wouldn't happen if it wasn't for the sport. And I know this sport isn't perfect. I don't even like the way they play it anymore. But I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of the guys that play this game. And I will fucking fight to the end to defend each and every one of them. And they're not perfect. They have their warts too. But they don't deserve to be lumped in when something like this happens with Babcock or any other incident with hockey, the Hockey Canada thing, which is fucking horrible. But you don't fucking torch and you don't fucking slime a fucking just a sport and the great people that play this sport to fit your fucking narrative. So every time you hear somebody use the term hockey culture, watch what they're doing. They're using the the current example of what they're talking about and they're using other examples, but they don't tell you about... For every bad example, the 200 good things that happen because of the sport, because it doesn't fit their narrative. And I know, guys, I'm sorry. I didn't think I was going to talk long. I just had to get this off my chest. Um, maybe you agree with me. Maybe you disagree with me, and that's cool. Okay? It's just been something that's been bothering me for a couple of days here. And then these same people that will always – it's so funny because the people that will criticize hockey culture will criticize – Biz and his show for the locker room culture. And listen, I, I'm not, <laughs> my, my podcast is not a pimple on the ass of Biz's show. So let's get that out of the way. Okay. But 
you can't deny the success it has. And it's not even really like my cup of tea, to be honest. I, I think I'm outside of that demographic. I don't care. I talk about guys, cocks and wrenches and ropes and shit. I don't give a fuck about that shit. Like, I don't know. It's weird to me that people do, but so be it. But it's so funny because the guys hammering biz 364 days out of the year are now praising him and hoping that he uses his platform to do more good for to expose hockey culture. Are you fucking kidding me? I heard people yesterday going, well, Biz is doing a good job, but th- when he's on TV, he's he's really good. He's like the Charles Barkley of the NHL. But then when he gets on Twitter and he curses, I don't know about that. You know what? The guy is more successful than most of the people criticizing him. He obviously knows what works. He's catering to his audience, and they're lapping it up. So he's figured it out. And I I have never met Paul Bissonnette in my life. I am not defending him nor crucifying him. But if you don't believe that he knows what he's doing, then you're a shit for brains. You do. He knows exactly what he's doing. But again, the hypocrisy of the people who slam hockey culture and will slam his show and slam the biz nasty character, let's say, but now because, oh, he exposed Mike Babcock. Now, oh, Paul Bissonnette's great, and we hope he uses his platform to, to create more good in the league. Fuck you. Like, he's your fucking pet for you to use. These people are nuts. Anyway, guys, like I said, I'm sorry. I, I don't even know how long it's been that I've been, been talking about this. And if you're still listening, thank you. Um, hopefully it's, you agree with me and find this entertaining, or you can send me a message and say, shut the fuck up. Anyway, this is this episode is not about me. It's about the second part of my interview with Dave Marcinishan. If you came here to hear about Dave Marcinishan and you fast forwarded through this, I don't blame you. Good for you. <laughs> Honestly, probably saved you a lot of eye rolling. Although I hope I hope some of you out there get my point. I, I do. I, I hope you I hope you maybe whether you agree with me or not, maybe understand where I'm coming from. But um, if you are here because of Dave Marcinishan, uh normally I don't go off like this, but Dave was, uh, was an unbelievable guest. This is part two of my chat with him. And uh, after these commercial messages, I hope you enjoy part two with Marshy, Dave Marcinishan. Everybody out there, please stay safe. College football fans. Are you ready for week one? DraftKings Sportsbook is hooking you up with a can't-miss offer to start the season strong. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on college football and score $200 in bonus bets instantly. Anything can happen in college football. Your team can go from unranked to dynasty mode in just a couple of years. Change comes fast. The only thing that's a lock is the great offers from DraftKings Sportsbook. Life's more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code THPN. New customers can score $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on college football. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code THPN. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. 
Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. We go into 8990, and and I I didn't know until you just said it about uh, how Tommy McVie was. Um, You're going into – this is your fourth training camp with them. Um, And just going by – listen, I know your game. And I, I'm looking at your numbers. And um, at any point with New Jersey, did sort of frustration set in? Because you already know there's nothing you can do. Tom McVie already has his preconceived notion about you. So really, he's not even going to give you the opportunity to uh, change his mind or impress him. And you already know you're behind the eight ball not being a college player with New Jersey. And now they're starting to get better and their their defense core is sort of like rounding out to where it's going to be the same way for a while. Did frustration ever set in uh, during your time with Utica? Uh, 100%. Great, yeah. great question. And, you know, that's a real specific point in my career that I can remember quite well, and that is when I made the team out of training camp. You know, I, I can <laughs> – I'll say when you, when you talk about memorable moments in, in a career, you know, they've made the final cuts – <clears throat> and I'm in the dressing room and I'm stretching and Bruce Driver's sitting bes- or he's he's stretching beside me and he looked over and he goes he goes nothing's gonna wipe that smile off your face is it, is it today Dave and I go absolutely not I go and he's like you know he's like congrats man you made it like congrats and uh, it was it was a very memorable day and and I thought all of my efforts and all that hard work paid off to to get me to a team like. It wasn't a call-up. It was like I made it at a training camp, and I was very proud of that. And um, when I I was in another lineup, right, I only played nine games there, but I was there from training camp almost to Christmas, sometime in December. So I was there for maybe 21, 25 games. And I had that feeling like, yeah, I can play. I can play at this level. I know I can, and I can I can help a team. And they sent me down. And uh, the exchange, I think, was for Miles O'Connor. Mm-hmm. It's another guy we haven't mentioned. And yep. Miles, college player, Calgary boy, I love him. Uh, tough as nails, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he coming out of college, he didn't have much fight experience. But I'll tell you what, Miles could handle himself. He was a good two-handed fighter. And for his size, he was a strong dude. And he was a, good, he was a really tactical, tough fighter. Yeah. But... I got sent down and I, I called my agent that day and I said, I don't want to go down. Mm-hmm. Go, I think I've proven my point within this organization that I've run my tenure with them. Right. So if I'm going down now, I've proven all that I can to them. So I'm going to ride it out. I go find a trade for me. Mm-hmm. I need a new team to play. So I sat in the, I sat in the hotel for maybe a day, a half a day. And my agent, I think he was talking to Lou and they're like, you can't do this. You know, it's going to be a bad move, blah, blah, blah. We still want you in the organization. And they buttered me up and made me feel good about myself. And I was like, you know what? When I talk about regrets in my career, that would have been one of them. Yeah. Stuck to my guns and I should have told my agent, I am not going down. Find me a trade. Mm 
And when you find a trade, I'll wholeheartedly go play for that team. Right. So I went down and yeah, the same old Tommy BS, right? Like, sure. I was playing great. Sure. I'd improved four years of development on my own, basically not through my coach. And, uh, I just knew I was stuck. And uh, the Russian, the Russians had come over by then. Yeah, and millions of dollars to bring Starkov, Fedosov, and Star and uh, Kasatonov off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Over, um, the writing's on the wall. Yeah, and I just kept hounding my agent the entire year. I'm like, get me out of here before the trade deadline. I don't need to ride this out here. I know what's happening. Um, yeah, and it was unfortunate. And they waited until the summer. It was. It was I almost felt like it was a punishment. Like it was kind of like, well, screw you, Dave, you want out of here? Well, we're going to hang on to you and use you as long as we can. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it happens. That's the unfortunate thing. You'd like to think everyone's a professional, but there's been uh, so, you know, numerous, numerous uh, examples set by uh, coaches and GMs over the years where it's just a spite thing or just, you know, I mean, everyone's heard uh, Mike Commodore, talk about Bob Babcock and uh, the Medano story with Babcock. I mean, there's numerous examples out there of coaches or GMs that for whatever reason, have it in for a guy and just will fuck with them for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the unfortunate side of any professional sport is a, like I said, mentioned earlier, you're just, you're just a number and you're going through the meat grinder and you're just another person that they can manipulate in any way shape and form that they want and to get out of you what they want out of you mm-hmm. and it's like a give back kind of circumstance it's a take 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 yeah. and what yeah see you later good riddance and uh good luck to you spit you out and off to the sidelines you go well let's talk about a few of your teammates from this season i'm sure that'll make you smile a little bit miles was on the list just so you know he's on here one of the names uh, another name I want to ask you about was Steve Rooney. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of funny, Steve. Uh, I'm still in, I'm, I'm connected to him on LinkedIn too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talked about him earlier, but Steve kind of reminded me of Dave Maley. Mm-hmm. So same build, same size, big dark haired guys, left-handed shots, left-handed fighter, uh, real laid back dudes off the ice. So yeah, Steve. Steve was a good teammate, real quiet guy, funny, sense of humor, good, good sense of humor, and uh, yeah, he's just one of those guys that just kind of like fit in wherever he needed to go, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, another guy who you know, I'm actually surprised he did a lot of battling for the Devils when they weren't very good. Uh, he found himself in Utica this year. That's Perry Anderson. Yeah, bull in a china shop. Yeah. Probably one of the. Thickest guys I've ever seen play the game. Like his legs were massive. His upper body, he was just just a thick, thick dude. He's probably played at 225, 230. Mm. He's maybe 5'11. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like it's kind of like linebacker, running yeah. back. You know, it's there were some guys that played the game that could look like did look like football players. Yeah. So and Perry was one of those guys, and he was just He's not a guy you want to get hit by on the ice because no. he gets in a straight line. He could skate. Yeah. I'm not, he was super agile on his feet, mm-hmm. but if he had you again in that train track and he had you in, in his, in his beams, like, look out, he's going to, he's going to hurt you when he hits you. 
Uh, another guy, Jimmy Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Jimmy's, uh, he was a character. He was a card. <clears throat> and he did like playing cards. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, another kind of, he ended up here in Edmonton mm-hmm. on a couple of summers. So I think he's a, he's an Ontario boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He hung out here and we skated together and got ready for training camps a couple of summers together. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think Jimmy was, uh, he had a certain skill and that was his shot. That's why we called him Top Gun. <laughs> he had a bullet, he had a laser beam of a shot. Mm-hmm. Jim maybe didn't want to put in the effort to the rest of the game that was required. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Back checking and forward checking. And I'm going to stand here in the slot guys. You give me the puck and I'll score when I get it. <laughs> you got you got to be able to do more than that, Jim. <laughs> so I love the guy. He was fun. He was lots of lots of fun to play with. But he did. He had he had a bullet of a shot, boy. Holy cow! And one of the things that Jimmy did, if you remember, he had those Velcro sleeves. He would slice the sleeves up the side, and I guess uh, hold it together with Velcro. So then, when the fight started, uh, Basil McRae used this too in the, in Minnesota. Um, and Jimmy would be skating around with the, the Velcro sleeves and the old Jaffa broomball helmet. Uh, did you ever try any, any Jersey modifications for yourself? No, yeah. I did. Uh, and I know some guys would like take all the, they'd get the trainer to cut all the threading out, mm-hmm. put like, you know, two or three stitches. Yeah. That, um, you know, I guess. I hate to I hate to say this I I, re- I really do but there's an art to a hockey fight mm-hmm. there's a skill to it and being Rob Ray and becoming uh, topless is like fighting in a bar mm-hmm. it's no longer a hockey fight and the tactician and the technical side to it if you want to drop all your gear and fight a guy first of all it's super dangerous. Mm-hmm. You got to give yourself a little bit of protection and, and and fairness. That that's the other side, and that's that's respecting the other players on the ice that you're potentially going to get in a fight with. There's a respect there. There's that honor system that they always talk about between guys, mm-hmm. and I I always felt like modifying it or or making an adjustment. So I'm just I'm a free-for-all brawler, and I've got no equipment on and no jersey. Well, now I look like a carnival act. So there was a reason they had a tie-down rule. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's that was to protect guys. Yeah, Free-bombing each other and getting knocked out and unconscious and concussions, well, that's not very respectful or honorable to the other players. So that was something I took quite seriously. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I know, I, I know we talked about like junior when you're yep. 18 years old and young and dumb, you might have like notched up your helmet and things like that. But as far as Jersey modifications, no, I never did. And I, and I felt that there was an honor in that, that should have been respected by all fighters. Patrick is another guy that I think totally modified his Jersey and kind of let's, let's make this a free for all, mm-hmm. you know, pro, pro, Probert. Hey, probably one of the all-time toughest guys in the NHL, bar none, hands down. But he he kind of fell into that mode too, right? Mm-hmm. But 
he had to because other guys were doing it. Right. But you watch his early stuff, his jersey stayed on. Yeah. Uh, another guy that you played with that wore a big jersey, but I think it was just because he was a large human being. He had to wear a big jersey because he's big. And I don't think you could say Bill Heward without saying big before that, right? What was it like playing with Huey? Uh, you know what? Huey and I are still in contact. We were super good friends. I knew you'd ask about him. Uh, we had a great relationship off the ice. There was a <clears throat> there's a, a buddy that we, he met. His name was Dave Litz. And, uh, you know, beer league hockey player, nothing related with pro hockey, mm-hmm. had his ragtag bundle of friends. And we drank so many beers with these guys. And Utica was in what was called the Oneida County. Mm-hmm. So we called ourselves the Oneida County Regulators. Just like, <laughs> what is that show, Young Guns with Emilio Estevez? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm call themselves something regulators and they'd always say, okay, regulators saddle up. <laughs> so when it was a night to go, go all bar hopping and chasing girls, it was like, okay, Oneida County regulators saddle up. And the boys knew what that meant. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Huey was, he was a beast of a guy, a uh, great dude. Uh, like I said, still in contact with him. And we, uh, we slugged a lot of beers off the ice together. So he was one of those guys that I was pretty close with uh, when I was playing, playing with teammates. Well, the the lead into this story that he told me is good because it has to do with uh, you guys drinking beers. Uh, he said uh, one night me and Marshy went to Syracuse to hang out and drink some beers. We stayed too long, and when we came out of the bar, we grabbed a pizza and then noticed my truck was towed away. We tried to break into the yard without any luck. We took a cab back to Utica. Marshy's window was stuck half open and we froze that night on that drive. We had to go back the next day to get my truck. So judging by your reaction, I imagine you remember this story crystal clear. Oh my God. What a night. Well, we went there for a concert. Okay. Remember that Syracuse had some really great concerts, like Stone Temple Pilots would roll through town and the big name bands like Allison Chains and stuff like that. So they weren't coming to Utica yeah. and we had the day off. We were, we were definitely going to zip over there. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, there was, uh, we thought it was complete, like, ridiculousness. The sign on the pole that told you you couldn't park there was probably 40 feet up the pole, and you had to take a magnet, like, binoculars to see it to know that you shouldn't have parked in that parking lot. <laughs> they probably had a good uh, relationship with the tow truck company and the impounding uh uh lot and made money together i bet yeah the funny thing is is that we scoped out we finally and so the sign says where the car's taken to so that's how we knew where the car was so we cabbed it over there and we're scoping out the whole yard it's big chain link fence it's got private stuff and plastic siding and we're like how do we get in there We, we could see his truck we're like okay we don't have keys, but like we could break into the office. There's got to be keys there, and we'll just find your set of keys and in, in the truck. In a way, we'll just bust the gate down with the truck, like young and stupid and drunk. <laughs> so we just we're just contemplating how are we going to make this work, and we start walking around the yard and we're whistling, 
and just like humming to ourselves and to, you know singing the songs that were in the concert. And then all of a sudden, the dogs come out. <laughs> there's got to be five of the mangiest, meanest looking Cujos. And we're like, well, I guess that idea is let's happen and we're going home <laughs> into that yard. If we're, we're so lucky we didn't jump in and think that we would have got to that office in time. We would have got chewed to pieces by the dogs they had in that yard. Wow. So we were lucky because the dogs were just laying around. They were quiet. But as we started to whistle, that's what brought them out of their hiding spots. And we were like, holy jeez, are we lucky we didn't do that stupid act. <laughs> we froze to death. We woke up hugging each other in the back of the cab. We were locked in, a, in, a, in an embrace, trying to keep ourselves warm on the ride home because we were actually like two cadavers trying to pull each other off of each other to open the, the door and get out and get into the hotel. Jesus. <laughs> well, that's a great story. I love that one. That was a fun night. <laughs> a few of the fights from that year uh, that I do have on video, one uh, in, it was against Baltimore, a guy who I think was, I don't know, he might've been shorter than Huey, but I think he was built uh, along the same lines as Bob Babcock. You had a good fight with him uh, when he was at Baltimore. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah, I do. I actually remember that one. Uh, it was a good scrap too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We definitely exchanged some some blows that fight. And then we went down on the ice and the linesman came in and the linesman sliced my hand open with his uh, skate. Get out of here. Yeah, totally accidental, right? Like they're like when you think of all the scraps and all the skates and everything that's been around, it's the only time that it's ever happened to me. But wow. he got he got me he sliced me across the back of my uh, pinky and uh, ring finger near the base of my wrist. And I uh, had to get a few stitches inside notes. He went pretty deep. And I was like, <laughs> any tendons or anything like that. But yeah, it caused, caused some problems. I had uh, issues with the stitches on the inside of my hand, got infected. And yeah, it was pretty problematic. I, I actually remember that fight because of it. I would say so. <laughs> I would say that definitely would lend itself to being a, a memorable moment. <clears throat> the... Um... There was a game in Utica against Maine. You you had a pretty – there were a few incidents I want to ask you about. This game was against Maine. It started with Lou Crawford messing with Kasatonov. Line brawl broke out. You weren't on the ice. I just want to remember, see if you remember this. And uh, Mariners are trying to get into the stands because I guess fans had started throwing stuff on the bench. They were trying to get into the stands. And then uh, it actually – the fight sort of took its way to where Maine left the ice. I think uh, – Perry Anderson may have been involved, and Norm Foster, Maine's goalie, was there. Like I said, you weren't on the ice, but I don't know if you remember anything about that, uh, just watching that go down. You know, the funny thing is, is I didn't recall until I went back through the team list mm -hmm. that uh, I think, and Kasatonov actually played in Utica. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was Holy smokes, I, you know, I remember it, but I had to be, like, totally reminded by it, right? Mm -hmm. But, yeah, and you said it was Starikov that was there? No, Kas it's uh, Crawford was giving Kasatonov a hard time. Kasatonov, yeah. So, obviously, I think the problem there was that, you know, he's Jersey's golden boy. Yeah. Right? And he's brought over, and I'm pretty sure that Tommy would make sure that 
everybody knew that those guys were to be protected mm-hmm. to speak. <clears throat> so, you know, I think they were just over there to get their, their legs and then automatically getting called up to Jersey. I think it was just when they first got there, they played a game or two. I think that was about it. I think mm-hmm. so. Yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, a little bit of mayhem, but that's, I think basically the the reason why is that, these these guys were to be protected. They're the golden boys. <laughs> and then another incident that you were on the ice for, but it actually took place on the bench, was a game against Binghamton. And Binghamton's coach, Doug McKay, they were winning by three goals, calls a timeout with a minute and a half remaining in the game. And McVie went over. He started screaming at him. McKay came over. He actually ripped the glass uh, that divided the bench. And you were on the ice, and you had a great view of this whole incident. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, that's what Tommy was about, right? Yeah. <laughs> Confrontational, couldn't uh, keep his cool. So, yeah, and and you're like, it's kind of funny because now the dividers come down and you're like, okay, <laughs> then go fight. Yeah. <laughs> it's comical that nothing occurred because the barrier had been broken down, so to speak, and the uh, the two, you know, chattering dogs could get at each other, but nothing become of it because, you know, cooler heads prevail or the players get in the way and no, no coach, come on, come on, come on. You can't <laughs> hold them back. Right. The irony, right? Yes. So uh, as we go to the next season, you had already uh, spoken about making the team out of camp and you had mentioned Bruce driver and uh, Bruce driver uh, gave you a nickname. Do you remember the nickname he gave you when you found out you made the team? Oh God. Well, well, it had to do with it had to do with your smile. Oh no, no, because I, I was thinking I was thinking something else. Because I, I, I had a couple of nickname changes through my career, so I know I was thinking something else. So no, I don't recall. I think it may have just been for this game or the immediate aftermath. But he was calling you Beamer because your smile—you couldn't get the smile off your face, and you were just beaming. That—that's according to something I read. I don't know how accurate that is, but uh, that's what I read. He just started calling you Beamer because you had the big smile. <laughs> well, like I said, it made sense. It was a very proud moment, right, in my life and my career. And yeah, you probably couldn't wipe that smile off my face the whole time I was there because it was. Uh, an accomplishment I had set my when I was four years old, you know, and you have that childhood dream and say, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to become. And as foolish as that sounds, but, you know, I made a dream come true. And that's something that doesn't very happen very often in anybody's life, uh, let alone somebody who says they want to play in the NHL. No, that's true. The odds of uh, of playing one NHL game are so staggering, and you you played more than that. And that's uh, I love hearing that story. You know, it's easy. A guy plays a thousand games. It's easy for stuff to get lost in the shuffle. Uh, but you know, remembering the day that you made the team is something that I hope you never forget. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, special time for sure. So <laughs> with with you playing with New Jersey, you played with some some players. I want to ask you about uh, someone that. Obviously, similar style to you, physical defenseman. Uh, to me, he's Mr. Devil. I always equate him, like here on the island, we have Mr. Islander, Bob Nystrom. And uh, for all the great players that have gone through New Jersey, Hall of Famers, uh, to me, Ken Danico is Mr. Devil just for spending his entire career there. He, he saw the bad times and the good times. Uh, I, obviously, you you uh, shared a locker room with Kenny for a few months there. Uh, any did he ever pull you aside, maybe give you some tips or what kind of a guy was, uh, was Kenny to be a teammate of? 
Yeah, and Kenny was a leader in the dressing room too, as well. Like, obviously, I, I do recall, you know, the John John McLean and Kirk Muller connection there, right? A pretty pretty amazing one-two punch. Uh, I never seen two guys work so hard for each other on the ice. Like they were friends on the ice and best friends off, and and it showed. And Ken was a leader, right? And and he definitely did say, "Hey, watch out for this guy. This is how he's gonna." you know, approach you if he's going to fight you, you know, be aware of this and, and that. So he, he definitely would give me tips. He'd definitely give me a heads up. Um, and you're right. He is, he is, you know, Mr. Devil. Like, and uh, he definitely earned his chops. He wasn't a big man. I mean, he was definitely a physical specimen, mm-hmm. but he was definitely not a tall man with a, any kind of reach. Right. So he took on a lot of big boys and uh, that's uh takes a brave man to do that. Definitely. And what were your impressions of a young Brendan Shanahan? <clears throat> yeah, you know, Brendan was very kind to me. He took me under his wing, too, a little bit like Dave Maley, mm-hmm. you know. Formed a friendship there and was definitely watching out for me. Um, I remember one time I ran into him in practice and gave me a Charlie horse. And I was just like, I was like, God damn, he's solid. I was just like, just a brick of a man. Right. And then he has the skill to score 50 goals in the NA, but a scrapper, complete competitor, like definitely uh, deserving of any accolade, uh, you know, imposed upon him or bestowed upon him because he was a warrior and he had a great set of hands. I mean, he knew how to put the puck in the net and tough as nails if he ever dropped his gloves. This player I want to ask you about, and I'm sure um, people, if I ask you if you played against him, you probably say one thing. I wonder if you're a teammate of his, if you say something different. Uh, Claude Lemieux, what does that name uh, bring up when I when I mention it? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things. The first thing is probably one of the strongest guys I've ever had to deal with on the X. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like a bodybuilder, but athletic. Mm-hmm. So. You know, there, there's a reason why when he hit guys or guys tried to hit him, they did they weren't very successful. Yeah, he was just a bull of a man, like oh, so strong. And I think back then there wasn't many stick companies that were like really dealing with flexes, mm-hmm. right? But his stick was like a two by four, and he still bent it in his hands. Wow! So the shot that he had, right, like. You look at guys like Ovechkin and those guys now, they just, they just lean on their stick and there's a bow in it. And, and his stick was, like I said, like a two by four and he still bent it when he leaned into it. He was such a strong guy. So yeah, he was, he was not well liked by <laughs> Ozzy teams. Um, he was a very bullheaded Frenchman that uh, spoke his mind in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. Take it or leave it, you know, sometimes it's good to challenge the leaders in the room, too, mm-hmm. and what direction they might, they might be taking. So it's always good to have that antagonistic point of view to uh, keep every everybody in line and maybe call a spade a spade once in a while. And I don't think uh, Claude was uh, afraid to do that. So I think he was a respected competitor, though. He, he was, a, like I said, he was a beast on the ice. 
And full disclosure here, I, I may be biased in saying this, but I think Peter Stastny is the most underrated Hall of Famer that there is. For a guy that had the career that he had, I don't think he gets mentioned nearly enough with the great players, and you were able to play with him for a short uh, short time. What are your memories of Peter Stastny? Yeah, and I believe we even crossed paths in Quebec as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so I remember him in, in training camp, even in Quebec, scoring some, like, bedazzling goals on the ice. Just hands and smooth and kind of like that upper echelon player where he's he's a step above. Mm-hmm. And I uh, just quietly went upon doing it because he was such a humble, quiet guy that he wasn't this outspoken guy that everybody was going to pay attention to. So, you know, it's it's <clears throat> it's a very good assessment, very good analogy that he was that quiet guy who went above and beyond uh, the skill set of most guys in the NHL. Yeah, and and you're right, quietly went up, uh, upon it and underrated it for for what he achieved in his career. If I say the the term pumpkin patch kids, does that mean anything to you from memory? Pumpkin patch. Well, no, not really. Okay, apparently uh, you were a part of the pumpkin patch kids with Pat Conacher, Doug Brown, and Paul Eisbart for the colored jersey that you wore in practice. I guess uh, later years you guys would have been the black aces. But uh, apparently you guys wore the, the pumpkin-colored jerseys, and uh, it's not really a group you wanted to be a part of because I guess it meant you were scratched that night. But uh, but from one of the articles I read, that uh, the four of you were the pumpkin patch kids. <laughs> so you don't want to read the bad articles. You only want to read the good articles. Technically, <laughs> 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 what that did to me is it's, it's, it's a mental block, Joe, and I uh, – I don't recall that one, so. Okay. Well, hopefully you recall this one. You made the Devils. Now it's time. Your first NHL game, October 6, 1990. Uh, I guess you found out at the morning skate that you were playing. And if you could kind of, if you remember that day, I always like to, because I, I think once the puck is dropped, it's just hockey. At any level, it's just hockey. So when I interview you guys, I always like to, to know what that day was like. Even, you know, were you able to nap? Did you Were you able to have a pregame meal? And then when you get to the rink, like, is there they're just a different feeling knowing that you're and you played exhibition games you played against a lot of these players but now it's your first official NHL game if you remember just the lead up to that day now was that against the Islanders no it's against the Flyers Flyers yeah at I the Meadowlands yeah Flyers or Islanders yeah because mm-hmm. I was thinking about Pat Lafontaine and just like what kind of player he was like I remember being on the ice with him and I was thinking oh my this guy's uh Gotta watch him. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. I, I got all time all time in the world talking about Palo Fontaine. I love him. Yeah. So yeah, and, and it's you know, I think it's one of those you have to go through your daily routine mm-hmm. and you're really trying your best to have a nap. But how 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 are you gonna have a nap? Right. On that day? Right. So you might lay there with your eyes closed in the dark. Um, and just thinking about all the things you're going to do and trying to get just some body rest, right? You're probably not going to get, I, I don't remember getting too much mental rest that day. Um, nerves settled down as I got to the the dressing room and started to tape sticks and get into that routine of what I did. Um, might've been there a little bit earlier than normal just to make sure I was there, you know, on time and things like that. But really, I think, you know, I think somebody might've either 
Either David Maley or Walt Podubny might have even swung by and picked me up. Okay. Yeah, to get me there, I think. Did I think David Maley might have done that too, actually. So yeah, once you got once I was into the routine and just taping my sticks and just thinking, okay, this is it's a big deal. Absolutely it is. Mm-hmm. But go through my routine and my thought process is what I do prior to a game and get myself mentally prepared and thinking, I've earned this. And this is where I belong and just go, just go belong. Right. And, uh, play the game. Yeah. That's about it. That's all I remember. And, and maybe that, you know, chiefs in the lineup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the guys you got to watch. I'm not sure who was there. It might've been Chikrin, Tony Horacek. Yeah. Brown was gone. Cause I got a question about him later. Brown was gone. So it was probably Barubi, probably Kushner may have been there. Uh, Chikrin Horacek. So they got a bunch of guys. So. Yeah, so I think, you know, then knowing what those guys were like, and if I was to end up in battle with them, then you you play that in your head out probably 10 ways with each guy prior, you know, in your, in your pregame sleep. Yeah. I got you. So uh, one of the games you ended up playing, you were able to, to go to Edmonton, play at Northlands. So uh, two questions about that. Well, I guess actually three. Uh, was your family able to go to that game, the uh, Edmonton game, when you were with Jersey? Did you have family there? Yeah, I did have family and friends. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that was also your first NHL point. You got an assist on uh, one of Claude Lemieux's goals. So I don't know if you remember that, but that was your first NHL point. Yeah, it wasn't anything special of, of a pass. It was just, uh, I think it was a bank pass uh, out of the zone into the neutral zone, and I. Th- think it might have been Shanahan and him on a two-on-one, I think. So it was just a, a normal, you know, man, D- D-man play that turned into something good that turned into a goal. So quite uh, quite the highlight, obviously, right, to say I got my first NHL point in my hometown uh, in front of family and friends. So yeah. then the next day there was a picture. Oh, I think that was a picture I sent you. You sent me, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so that was in the journal the next day. So that was, uh, you know, uh, totally special memory. Well, and one of the guys in that picture was Dave Brown, and uh, Dave Brown is a legend. Uh, any chance you gave any thought to maybe uh, tapping him on the shin pad and saying, let's have a go? <laughs> I definitely knew he was a lefty. <laughs> There's a certain way I fought lefty, so I like, better be ready because that is a tough boy. Yeah, he's not just a lefty. He may be the lefty. Yeah, exa- exactly. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the picture, what's funny about it is I think it's Al Stewart, myself, Kelly Buckberger, and Brown. Yeah. In that picture. And they're the on the ice. You guys are standing over them. Yeah, I know. Exactly, right? So it was, uh, yeah, quite a quite a memorable picture, too, to have framed and uh, catch by the photographer, at least. I was wondering if you bullied Brownie when I saw him laying in the crease there. I wasn't sure how that worked out. I thought maybe you bullied him a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but, hey, at least I said I I had the upper hand at least once. There you go. Not many guys could say that, right? Uh, so we were, we talked about, you know, the what you played those games, you got sent down, talked about that situation. Uh, one other guy I want to ask you about that uh, that was a teammate there for the first year, uh, was new to the team, was Jeff Christian. Uh, what do you remember about playing with Jeff? Yeah, Jeff was a big, strong kid. He was a second-round draft choice, I believe, that year. So he just uh, 
kind of trying to get his feel. Like, you know, good skill set, good shot. Probably didn't know, like, what he was capable of at that time. So, yeah, he was just earning his way in. Uh, and, like I said, he was he was a strong kid, and he had the potential to have a long-standing career. He really did. And uh, a couple of fights I want to ask you about, both against uh, Binghamton Rangers. Uh, Dennis Vial, who's another guy that's on all these uh, AHL tapes until he uh, till he got called up and, and made a name for himself in the NHL. Really, really good scrap with Dennis. And then uh, a couple of months later, you had a good scrap with uh, a guy who'd be your teammate in a few years, Peter Fiorentino. I don't know. I don't know if you remember those uh, those scraps. Yeah, I do. I just remember Pete being like. He jumped around like he'd won the fight. Like it was like a victory that he didn't get killed or something. And I was like, Pete, it was a good trap. But then it just, yeah, it was a good fight. It was fair. It was probably a draw. But he was just like jumping around on the ice just to stop. <laughs> Maybe it was just for the hometown crowd or something like that. But I just thought, uh, I thought that was quite comical. Uh, you remember the fight with Dennis? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just a, a normal toe to toe, right? Mm-hmm. oh yeah good scrap yeah like equally sized guys for sure right so yeah just a good exchange for sure and your last fight as a member of the devils uh a tko of mike jackson of Newmarket. Uh, i don't i would imagine you'd remember that one you, you put him down a couple of good shots yeah i just you know what i do it's kind of funny this guy in vancouver uh, contacted me and he said he had a few ta- uh, a few fights mm-hmm. of mine. Yeah. So it was a fight I'd never seen mm-hmm. before. So he sent me a disc and I and I put it in and I watched it and I was like, um, I was like, well, yeah, that was a, it was a good hit and I I didn't realize that it was that uh, dramatic of a knockdown actually. Yeah. yeah. So your your career with Utica, you ended up being, and this is, I guess, is this a dubious honor being the all time leader in games played? Like it's it's an honor, but it just means you spent maybe too much time there with uh, two hundred seventy three games played uh, with Utica. You're the all time leader, and obviously the team is no more. So uh, so that's a record that's not going to be broken. Uh, you're also fifth all time in penalty minutes uh, with in Utica Devils history. Yeah, you know what? I've never been told that. I never knew it, and I thought there was just so many. Like, like is there other long-standing guys? Like, because they went to Albany, didn't they? Yeah, but this is just strictly Utica. I didn't look for Utica Albany combo, just with Utica. And just to give you an idea, um, you're fifth in Pims with five twenty-five. Jamie Huscroft is first. He had twelve hundred sixteen penalty minutes in Utica. So, uh, like you know, you two guys down there, you guys were just trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I and that was funny when I was looking up the team stats and I saw Jamie was at like three fifty nine or something. Yeah. One, like holy cow, did he? I'm like, really? He did that much crapping? I'm like, oh my god, maybe it was a lot of ten minute misconducts on top of the fives. Yep. And mm-hmm. but I'm, holy god, that's a lot of time in the box. <laughs> So, so you discussed it. You discussed being traded to Quebec. So, tell me uh, when you heard the news from your agent that you were you were traded to Quebec. What was your uh, reaction to that? Yeah, obviously, I was ecstatic just because I'm cutting ties with a with a team that I didn't feel really wanted me, mm-hmm. and and weren't very, I guess, respectful or professional in the sense that, you know, I asked for this trade a long time ago, 
and they kind of hung on to me. So I think maybe they tried to make trades. Maybe maybe they fell through. I I don't know, right. but it's punishingly punishingly long to be down in the minors and being with Tommy again and knowing like that's what I've got to put up with mm-hmm. and uh, knowing that there's other there's there's better options out there, mm-hmm. so to speak. So yeah, I was really happy. Thinking, you know what, Quebec's a weaker team, mm-hmm. good chance to crack the lineup, um, cut my ties and, and be ready to go. And it was it was like a new lease on life and I definitely went there with the the energy and the attitude that I can make this team. Now, one thing we discussed uh, last week when we chatted for a little bit was about this training camp with Quebec. And uh, because guys were there and they filmed a training camp, a lot of their training camp fight footage uh, is out there. It's available. And uh, their camps are, you know, it just, they seem notoriously violent, notoriously physical. And a lot of times with, with many teams in training camp, it's the younger guys fighting the younger guys to try to establish themselves. Well, this camp that you were in, a lot of veterans were doing that. You had guys like Tony Twist, John Cordick, uh, Bird Dog Smith was there, uh, Killer Kaminsky, Serge Roberge, Wayne Van Dorp, Herb Ragland, veteran guys like that. Then uh, Stephen Finn was there. You had younger guys like yourself and Daniel Doré, Owen Nolan. Uh, what do you remember about that training camp? Yeah, it was... Uh... And, you know, it's funny you say that there's lots of fights out there on tape. But, I mean, I can remember a couple of memorable ones. But I, at the same time, I can remember there just being more fights in the preseason games against other teams. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Like, I remember Adam Foote fighting um, a Don, uh, John Cordick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Herb got in a couple fights, I believe. And you know what? Bird Dog, he'd fight anybody on any yeah. given day. So it didn't, it didn't take much to set him over the edge, so it doesn't surprise me. And same with Killer and Surge, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's going to drop the gloves, like, more than willingly. So not surprising that there was a lot of fights in camps with those personalities. The uh, the one fight I have of you from that camp, uh, you, a typical, you know, your job, you're defending your teammate. And a guy who most people don't think of him as, as tough, and he's certainly not a, a tough guy, that you think of, but especially with Quebec, and I didn't realize it until I started going through some old discs, Mike Huff, he didn't mind getting his nose dirty, and uh, he was messing around with, I think you might have been on the blue squad that day, he was on the white squad, and uh, that's the only fight I have for, of you from that camp against a teammate was Mike Huff. <clears throat> wow, now he, correct me if I'm wrong, but was he not the captain? Uh, they kind of rotated captains. I think by this time it may have been Joe Sackick in ninety one, ninety two, or or Stephen Finn maybe. Yeah, because him and because him and Joe Sackick were on the same line. Mm-hmm. They were best buds. Like, because and Mike did obviously protect Joe at times. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, what's funny. Like, I thought you were going to say that I stepped in to protect Mike. No, he, he was giving some of your guys the business. And uh, and you stepped in. I don't remember who it was, but uh, but you stepped in to kind of settle him down. Yeah, and you know he played with an edge. Like, yeah, he'll put up twenty five, thirty goals a year, but definitely had the ability to handle himself too. Mm-hmm. Like, were so many guys back then that did right back then that could score goals and play tough at the same time. 
Yeah, it was it's almost a prerequisite in a way. I mean, you had certain players like Joe Sackick never had to play tough, you know, and I'm not saying he wouldn't, uh, but Matt Sundin, the guys like that, they didn't have to. Uh, but, you know, a guy like Mike Huff, you know, maybe third liner, so sometimes playing with Joe, uh, you know, he didn't mind getting his nose dirty. Quebec always had guys like that, like a, a Mike Eagles type player too, where people don't necessarily think of him as a tougher player, but he didn't mind fighting either. I remember, uh, I think it was with Winnipeg, he fought Joe. Coaster, so um, you know, guys that it's not necessarily their primary job, but they don't shy away from it either. Yeah, totally. And then you know, even a guy like Owen Nolan, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not many guys knew how tough and how many fights he got into. Establish his, you know, you talk about getting space to score mm-hmm. a goal. Owen Nolan was a big guy, yeah. And he could have, and he could score goals, but he definitely made room for himself by uh, not being shy of dropping the gloves. No, that's for sure. So you start out in Halifax, and this year is just phenomenal year. A 74 games, 52 points, double-digit goals. I mean, this is almost like you were all pent up from your days in Utica, and now you finally had a chance to show what you can do, and uh, and you took it and ran with it. Well, I mean, did everything just click this season? Maybe uh, Clement had uh, just shown you some confidence, let you play in all different situations. This is a pretty pretty fantastic year. Yeah, it is. And he just, like I said, at the start of the year, he goes, you know, Dave, you're one of the older defensemen on the team. You, you're you're not old, but you're very young in your career, but you have the pro experience. So I, I expect you to be that experienced D-man on the ice and make the right decisions and do the right things. So, you know, that conversation just made me feel confident and comfortable that he was confident and comfortable with me. And uh, obviously just being on the first line power play and just saying, you know, Here's the puck. You know, I know you can move it, but you've got that shot and you've got that vision and just continue to do it. What, I, what, what you're, what you're doing kind of thing. Right. And we never, I never really looked back. The only, the only thing with that is it was super disappointing to have that year and see how bad the Nordiques were, mm-hmm. all these struggled. And they were refusing to call guys up. And, you know, I've got a couple names written down here. And you got guys like Brian Fogarty and uh, Gusaroff. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I remember, I remember in, I think, preseason, we were playing a game. And it was a tie game. And Gusaroff had this curve that was literally puck width at the heel. <laughs> wow. It just went up a little bit at the toe. And he's at the blue line and the puck bounced over his stick like, and it did a lot because mm-hmm. it was such a thin blade. And Pierre Paget came in and snapped about six of his sticks right in the middle of the dressing room. Oh, wow. Just took, they were so thin. All you had to do is just take them and go doink like a toothpick and snap them. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and he's just swearing his head off. And he's like, get a new pattern and noose. Boom, boom, boom. And he just, he just snapped about six of them and walked out of the room. <laughs> You know, there's just, I just thought that the Nordiques were a misdirected organization. Uh, They treated the guys with class. Don't get me wrong. They had money. They threw it at the guys. They made sure everything was first class. And that was great. It was a really nice, you know, Jersey was a little bit tight with the Mm -hmm. first string. Yeah. But they were like, no, whatever you need, you got. And that was great to see. And great to be experienced of, but they just seemed to be misdirected. I thought Pierre Paget, again, like, you know, you talk about 
having that talent, and that was that was raw young talent in Sundin, Owen Nolan, and Sakic. And where where could he have gone with that? Mm-hmm. It was directed. And I just felt he didn't run good practices. He didn't have an organized system. Like, you know, again, like Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. This is it, boys. This is what we're doing. You buy in or you're out. And it's like, but this system is going to work because he knows it's, it's tried and true. And I just, I didn't see that there. And I just thought it was a little bit of misdirection on the organization's part. And I don't, I think they, they had the wrong guy at the helm. And I, I they, finally got the right guy i guess in mark crawford but then by then it was too late because they took the you know obviously they win the cup uh, win a couple of cups but it's in colorado so it's unfortunate for the fans that you know and i imagine the fans of quebec were rabid rabid fans and it's unfortunate for them that the the seeds were sown the last few years in quebec and then they just took it all the way in colorado yeah and uh, really unfortunate too right because a very deserving fan base, A, to have been a part of that success, and two, I'll switch gears on you right now and, and also say it's it's so sad to see that someone like a, a, a Batman just loves America and he can't get over himself, you know, his, can't see his face to play his nose or however you want to say it, but Quebec should have had an NHL team five years ago, maybe more. You the suffering that's going on in Arizona. You mean the five thousand seat college arena? What? That's not. <laughs> it's a so, joke. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. Mm-hmm. When you think, if I was, if I'm an NHL owner, and let's say Gary Bettman's running a a meeting over the phones or whatever, and saying, guys, you're you're going to have to, you know, market share, and you've got to give this team money at the end of the year and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm an owner. I run my ship. If somebody's sinking over there, like then find him a place where he's not going to sink. But why are you putting the screws to him and making me pay for it? I don't know how the owners agree to that. You know what I'm saying? I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm like, come on. It'd be like those meetings they have in Florida. I'd be like, okay. Yeah. Golfing's fun. That's great. What are we going to do with Arizona? And Quebec built an NHL facility that's sitting there empty, and you know they can they can work the conferences and the divisions any way they want for travel. And I can't imagine how Quebec has grown, the fan base that's there, the money that's there. That team would explode off the chart support. And it's just a sad thing to see that the NHL is so misdirected and misguided in making a decision like that. I, I think it's horrible. Well, you and I are in full agreement. I, I couldn't say it any better than that. hundred percent, you know, and, and, you know, the Islanders played Phoenix a couple of weeks ago and we're watching the game. And I'm like, this is, it's ridiculous. It looks like they're playing in the practice rink here on long Island. It's uh it's a joke, but like he's stubborn and he wants to make this work. And, if it eventually does work in Arizona, he'll take the credit and say, look, we stuck it out. Look at this great job I did. But he'll just forget all the nonsense that it took to keep them there. And even here, when the Islanders, uh, you know, they he wouldn't let them play in the Coliseum because it didn't have enough luxury boxes. And it was just, they it was always a talk where they may move. Well, well what's the difference between that? What they Islanders didn't have a college rink to play in. Like, I, I'm not a fan of his either, so... You know, you and I could bitch about him all all day. It won't make a difference, but I think we're in full agreement. You know, yeah, 
you know, I, you know, I do watch games and, and you see the empty stands in a place like Tampa and Florida as well. Mm-hmm. And they got, they got great teams. Like I go tripping over my feet to go see, watch Kucherov and Hedman play. Like Hedman is the stud man. Like he's it. And I just love watching high talent play. And he, they scan, you know, as the play's going on, you're like, look at all those empty bowl seats. Yeah. Just like, just throw me one of those tickets, please. Just <laughs> I'll have at her. So I, you know, and I'm just, I, I don't know if those teams are suffering financially or anything like that, but I do know that Phoenix has suffered horrible financial losses. Yeah. It would have to be, they have to be. And you've got to have a business. Oh, they've talked 10 or $15 million a year. <sighs> and you've got to have a business plan. And at some point in time, the writing's on the wall, and I don't care what your injuries you're willing to incur during that time. And like you say, come out on the other end and say, oh, look, it's all rainbows and a pot of gold now. Well, you know what? You had your pot of gold sitting in, in Quebec. Yeah. Like, make it happen sooner. Yeah, I um, hope they get a team. I, I, when I was uh, interviewed Ken McRae, we were talking about that because he plays with the Leafs alumni. And I said, how great would it be? Uh, to get a team back in Quebec. And I guess there's logistics involved because I guess the Avalanche own the rights to the name and everything like that because when they do their reverse retro jerseys, they're using the Nordiques logo. Uh, but how great would it be if something could be worked out? You put the Nor- you put a team in Quebec, get them the Nordiques. You have your instant rivalry with Montreal. Even the uh, uh, what the alumni games would be pretty cool, thinking about all the, the great players that went through Quebec and having them against Montreal. They'd probably get... I don't know what stadium you'd play the the outdoor game in, but how amazing would that be? Yeah, and it, it would be. And you know what the the things, the items you're you're tabling, those are small potatoes. Yeah. yeah. In North East, okay, change the name. I, mm-hmm. Like, if if you want, and if yeah. and Avalanche want to be sticky about it, whatever. But mm-hmm. plays around that. That those are minor issues. Like, yeah. talking about supplanting a team or getting a new team into a city that would just be so vibrant and Quebec is a magnificently beautiful town, mm-hmm. beautiful men dress gorgeously. Like it's a very European style city in Canada. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it goes under the radar for its beauty and its history. Um, so I loved playing there. So yeah. I loved it. And I think, man, what a, an unfortunate set of circumstances that it's not being utilized as a, as an NHL base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, one of the things I love, like I said, when we do the name association and uh, the first guy I want to ask you about, and you told me a great story about him. Tell me the, tell me Kevin Kaminsky's story that you told me last week. Oh, oh there's so many about killer. <laughs> so well, I don't know how long killer been playing by that time. And it's kind of funny that my nickname in junior was killer. And then I eventually turned pro and play guy with a name whose nickname is killer. I kind of thought that was funny, mm-hmm. but, uh, Kevin was not the most handsome man, and uh, he had a lot of scars, and he he wore his battles well, so to speak. But uh, uh, he got a, a dentist, the, the team dentist, to get him a, a set of custom teeth. Now he had pretty good teeth, no problem, right? He had he had a pretty good set of natural teeth, but the teeth that he got made were. Teeth that looked backwards, teeth that were twisted 90 degrees normal to a normal tooth. And they just looked horrendous. Like, 
not like a hockey player had got his teeth knocked out, but somebody who had like a deformity. Mm-hmm. And he'd take these to the bar and he'd go chat a girl up and the girl would like, he wouldn't smile much. So he would just keep a tight lip as he was speaking. And so she could see that maybe there was maybe normal teeth there, but you couldn't quite tell. Mm-hmm. So he would just be directly behind him so we could see her facial expression. So she might have gone to the bathroom or she might have turned around to say something to her friend or he might have turned around to look at us and he would put this mouthpiece in mm-hmm. and turn back to the girl to continue the conversation and then he would smile. <laughs> and the face <laughs> on the woman's face, they were all appalled, but they were trying to sustain their reaction or refrain from showing the actual horror seeing these teeth in this gentleman's mouth and we i mean you'd see guys spitting beer across the bar we'd be laughing so hard just thinking oh now now and then and the conversation and he'd be you know he he yeah he had it in he was Mm -hmm. doing it all and as soon as he did that the conversation shortened (laughs) it was briefly dismissed i guess you could say (laughs) conversation had no more length to it so guys loved it we played so many jokes on the road and things like that but yeah and you know another one i had written down too about bird dog Mm -hmm. if anybody ever wants to lay this challenge down but i saw him twice in a bar snort a shot of jack daniels get at seriously take a straw close up one side and take a straw and suck an entire shot of Jack Daniels up his nose. Wow. I couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I know I couldn't do that. Bird, Bird dog was a different dude, man. He was pretty tough. He was pretty wild. But uh, that was one thing I remember going, holy smokes. That looks, it looks punishing. Uh, he, was, he didn't have a smile on his face when he did it, but he gutted it out. And I was like, I was like, that's impressive. I haven't seen anybody do that. And I haven't seen anybody do it since only once. That's impressive. I mean, I, I'm trying to accumulate as many bird dog stories as I can because, unfortunately, I'll never be able to interview him. But I like hearing the, the stories firsthand from the boys because it, it, all the stories combined will make a pretty good episode. So that's a good one. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I got other – let's see. Uh, you know, and I guess um, just to pay my respects to, you know, fallen brothers, obviously John Cordick, mm-hmm. you know, Hopefully he rests in peace. I know his family well. We grew up together. Mm -hmm. His two sisters went to the same schools, me and my brothers and sister, and, uh, you know, Brian Fogarty, you know, another loss from the Quebec past, and uh, Stefan Moran. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Steph was an amazing, talented hockey player. I think he led the scoring in the maybe the AHL twice or IHL. Yeah, you know, sure, but yeah. 135, 140 points per season. <clears throat> the guy literally would line up in the face-off draw, dot in the offensive zone, and he'd say, Dave, move two inches to the left. And he would put that puck on my tape like a rocket from the face-off dot. And he just, he had a special, special talent, special skill, and uh, really... Really sad to see him go. We we played a special game in Berlin for him. Oh, is that right? It was quite the honor to be a part of. Um, when I was playing my, uh, my 
my career of finishing off in Germany and Steph passed in Berlin, what they did is they took his Berlin team and all the guys that he had previously played with that were over in Germany, they contacted us and flew us in for, a, a, I think it was a fundraising game for his family. And, uh, yeah, just a, a memorial game. And I still have the jersey, all the guys that signed it. So pretty special moments, pretty special event to, uh, you know, remember special hockey players, special players. That's amazing. That That's it's an unfortunate situation, but I mean, it's great to hear. Yeah. It's a brotherhood, you know, it's mentioned all the time, but it, it's especially nice when the organization recognizes it because sometimes the organizations can just be a business, but that's really actually great to hear that the team did that. Yeah, for sure. It was, it, uh, and it was just special to be a part of, I was very lucky to be over there at the time and be able to share that moment and participate in the game. So there's a couple of guys on this team that I reached out to. Uh, one guy is Trigger, Ken McRae. Uh, I asked him what he remembered about playing with you. And, and it, I'm noticing a theme here. Uh, just a big, tough guy, funny guy, and a great guy in the locker room. Steady D-man. If I remember correctly, he wore the knuckle buster helmet, which we've already discussed off off the air. And uh, he brought up, he goes, I remember the good tilt he had with Kimby when uh, he was with Utica. So what do you remember about playing with Ken McRae? Yeah, and you know, Ken Ken was another guy that had good skill, but he was tough. Ken could handle himself. He he played with an edge and he he got under the skin of guys, but uh he backed it up. So <clears throat> he uh yeah, he I mean he still put put the puck in the net. Uh competitor, definitely uh strong guy on the ice. And uh you know, Halifax was a year, it was unfortunate. We had a very young team. The Stefan Charbonneau's and the Denny Chassés, and you know Denny's another super tough guy that mm-hmm. yep. really honed his skill and became a good hockey player too. Um, and we were we had we had too much fun. <laughs> Not gonna lie, we were on it. We were a playoff contention, and yeah, and no slight on Claude the Cogill, but Claude, he was an amazing coach mm-hmm. and had a better developing coach for all that young talent uh but we were too young so against an experienced team we would just get clobbered because the the discipline wasn't there and the positioning wasn't there and the decision making wasn't there on the ice to have play against a four or five ten-year veteran mm-hmm. at a young team but i'm telling you it was probably one of my most fun years in all of pro we had such a blast in that rink and out of the rink downtown area halifax walk out of the rink you're at all the bars all the downtown tours coming through al cooper and all the trooper and april wine and all those bars had those bands there and i'm telling you it was such a fun year i I lived with a nicholas anderson oh he played here on the island for a bit exactly tricky Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what is on that guy he was very good here. I, I don't think people, you know, knew what to expect. I mean, I think when he first got here, it was uh, Mikhail's brother. But uh, he got an opportunity to play here, and uh, and he was actually pretty fun to watch. There, You know what? There's times where he actually danced five guys on the ice. I can believe I'm, it. I'm not going to lie. He just, he had a skill to him. Even he came over as a 20-year-old, and I was, I think I was with him, too, on the power play. And, he was a guy that would just, as a 20-year-old, no panic. 
walk the blue line. He'd keep it one inch inside that blue line and go, you know what? I just got enough room. I got enough room. And then he'd make a move and he'd embarrass somebody and he'd find the open guy. And he might embarrass two or three guys on a shift at one time. Cause he, that's why we called him tricky Nicky. Cause man, he could deke guys out pretty good. He was, I mean, he was a blast to live with. He was my, let me throw out a, let me throw out a couple other names to you. I'll throw them out. And when I'm done, if you got any good stories, you could tell them, you could tell the story. So we mentioned killer mentioned surge a while ago, mentioned trigger. You mentioned Danny Chasse. We talked about bird dog. So, uh, Wayne Van Dort, you know, he, he talked about having a young team, but he was, a, he had to be a veteran at that point. I know he had been with Chicago and Edmonton, I think by that point, uh, Daniel Dore, another young kid, uh, Everett Sanipas, Dean Zayance, Martin Samard, Mike Butters, and from what Ken McRae told me, probably the best mullet on the team was Scott Pearson. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's funny because you're, you're, that's a lot of names to yeah. write them down, but we'll go one by one. But what I remember when you start saying that, <clears throat> and this was a little bit of the misdirection that Quebec had. Mm-hmm. And that was the fact that some of the veteran guys like Wayne Van Dorp mm-hmm. was already checked out. Mm-hmm. So, in order to try to get the young guys to buy into a system and have a couple of vets not was misdirected. I would have rather seen them. And they did even send, they sent Fogarty down, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we both know that John Cordick and Brian had their battles. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And to send those guys down and have misdirection for young players, it wasn't, it wasn't the old, it wasn't a Pat Conacher. It wasn't a Murray Brumwell and a Steve Tajura leading the team. Right. These guys were leading in the wrong way. Right. So, you know, and they're, and they're pissed off that they got sent down. They weren't, they weren't the kind of guys that came down and said, I'm going to do my best. The team sent me down here for a reason. I got to get in shape or I've got to get more playing time or confidence or whatever. And I'm going to get back up to the team, but I'm going to show these young guys what being a professional is about. And that didn't occur. So that was, I think, a little bit of the mishandling, too, of Quebec mm-hmm. and what some of the young talents that they, they did have at that time, myself included. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Everett Sanipas was total professional dude, really good guy, salt to the earth, super nice, soft-spoken guy, but quiet leader, mm-hmm. uh, really classy dude. Um, Martin Samard was kind of like Bambi on the ice, right? He, he was so young and he just, he didn't, yeah, I don't think he knew how tough he was. Yeah. Big lefty, had giant mitts on him, big build. Like he was a guy that could, he could hammer on you if you, you got a hold of you. So, you know, he was just coming into his own. Same with Denny, right? Mm-hmm. Chasse. Like Denny was talented. He, he knew how to beat guys one-on-one and I uh, played with grit and definitely could back it up. You know, super tough fighter, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, go through the list again. Um, next guy would be Daniel Dore, who I didn't know. I didn't realize how bad his back was. I, I had no idea the struggles he had. He had a really bad back that I guess shortened his career. Yeah, so the only thing, you know, the one thing, like Danny was a good player and stuff, but uh, at that time, Quebec and and you know, yeah, you can look at the lineup and, you know, they were definitely 
an organization that were going to favor Quebec-based hockey players. Right. Mm-hmm. French-based hockey players. <clears throat> the problem with that is if you get the wrong person, you're, um, you can cause a disruption. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of an, like, and I was definitely, like I said, one of the older players. I was an assistant or a captain. My voice was heard in the dressing room. And I never really felt on teams previously that there was uh, a division. Mm-hmm. At times, Danny would be one that would kind of split that French-English divider. Okay. He'd throw that in there. And I'm like, you can't do that, man. This is a team. We're all one team. So he'd be like, okay, young French guys, you come with us. You know, it's right. like, no, no, we're all playing together kind of thing. Right. So the thing that I remember about Danny that he, don't get me wrong, he's very proud of his heritage, mm-hmm. French base, but you can't have division on a team. And sometimes he, he brought that into the dressing room. Gotcha. Scott Pearson. Yeah, no, wasn't Scotty a first-round draft choice? Yes, yep, uh, uh, Toronto. That's right, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, I think they had their go at him, and Scotty had the skill. He had, uh, well, I think we even talked about Trevor Steinberg, too. Yes. Another first-rounder, right? My first, my first guest on this show, Trevor Steinberg. Good buddy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Him and Scotty were kind of in that same position. First rounders, highly touted, high expectations. Um, don't know if they were given given the fair shake. Mm-hmm. But I think it's pretty easy for a first rounder when you're told and promoted like you're the guy, mm-hmm. right? Like you're our future. This is why we invested in you. It's why we waste you know used our first round draft choice on you and. And if it doesn't come to fruition, I think they can burn, turn a little bit bitter. They turn a little sour and they're like, what's going on here with my career? And why am I being told all this positive, but I'm not on Toronto. I'm not in Quebec. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those guys have a, they have a harder mental mindset to play with. You know, when you're, when you're drafted that high and you're, you're, I guess, told that you're, you're that valuable, mm-hmm. but had all the tools, so did Trevor, right? Yeah. Trevor, tough as nails, had a great-handed shot, great shot, great scoring ability, had all the tools, and that's when I look at the direction or misdirection of Quebec. Mm-hmm. And you know what? You're struggling. You almost have the worst record in the NHL on history, and you've got this young talent that maybe Matt Sundin can play with or Joe Sackett can play with or Owen Nolan can play with. What are you doing? Right. Pull the deck. And you might as well either get rid of some guys and give your AHL guys a chance or like make some trades and get some other NHL guys in there that can play. Cause right now you're sucking. The last guy I'm going to ask you about, and I didn't let the cat out of the bag on him, but this is the one I had mentioned to you where I have a great Dave Marcinician story. I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to tell you his name, and you're going to you're going to tell me if uh, if you know what story I'm about to say. Ivan Matulik. <laughs> <laughs> There's too many. Well, all right. Now, hear many. me out. I'm going to. This is a long story, so I'm going to read it, and uh, you tell me how accurate his assessment is. Okay. <laughs> all right. I was staying with Dave in Edmonton, and we were skating together, getting ready for camps. 
He was with Utica at the time. We played one season in Halifax, and he did it all. He had a wicked year, lots of fights, lots of points. The next summer, we hung out quite a bit. The story I'm referring to is one day we decided to go play golf in a place just outside Edmonton in a place called Stony Plain. We load up the car with the two four beers. We end up playing behind these four guys. We were being obnoxious with the more beers we drank. We started yelling at them because they wouldn't let us play through. Lo and behold, I think on the back nine, they dropped a phone, the old classic brick phone they used to have. I'm like, let's give it to them. And Dave is like, fuck those guys. We're not going to give it to them. They're not letting us play through. We kept the phone. We, were, we just put it in our golf cart. We we're having lunch after the round, and the guy comes to our table and asks if we found a phone. And Dave just outright lied and said, no, we didn't find a phone. Dave had this black Grand National car with New York plates, and we were thinking we were invincible. We get in the car after lunch and head back to Edmonton. We went for an early dinner, and we figured we'd try to use the phone. I had never seen a cell phone. I'm, I'm from Slovakia. So we start calling everybody. It was no problem. There were no codes. After about two hours into it, we get a call, and the voice says, hey, where are you guys? And we were like, what do you mean, where are we? And we knew it was somebody trying to find out where the phone is. The phone ends up dying. Now, keep in mind, I'm getting married to my now ex-wife in a few weeks. Apparently, these guys were undercover cops, and the only reason we didn't get in trouble is because they must have been playing around while they were on duty. They traced the car to his parents' house where he was staying. They knock on the door and ask, where's the other guy, the European squarehead guy? He points me out, gives them my name and everything, and I'm like, oh, Dave, you're a nice accomplice. It, and it was your idea. So <laughs> they called me saying we're in trouble. And I'm like, how are we in trouble? You guys lost the phone. Whatever. I don't care. They said they were trying to catch us. But Dave in this Grand National, we had to be doing about 200 kilometers per hour. Uh, they said they tried to pull us over, but they couldn't. They couldn't catch us. I was sweating because, like I said, I was having my wedding reception during that period. Luckily, nothing came out of it. They may have called once more to say we're letting you off with a warning. It was a nervous time after having such a great time with the phone calling every ex-teammate and my family. I was probably looking at 5 to 10 in an Edmonton prison with Dave Marcinician, my accomplice. I think he had some cocky personalized license plate too. When you talk to him, ask him, I bet he'll remember, and tell him that Ivan still calls him a rat. He's a good guy. We hung out a lot that summer, even after he gave me up for his own freedom. Actually, I think at the time, his sister was in training or maybe she was a full-fledged Edmonton police officer. So Dave was probably like, you know, that commie guy from Slovakia. Let him fry. Please make sure you tell him I said hello. I haven't seen him in a long time. Ironically, I think the last time we ran into each other was in a gas station in Jasper. So I know that's a lot to unpack. Uh, do you remember that story, and how accurate is his recollection? Oh, God. it's <clears throat> I've been, uh, oh, we were such good friends. Uh, he's such a good guy. Mm -hmm. Solid, solid human being. You know, I, I played, with, played with a lot of European guys that they have really nice personalities, yeah. and they're salt-of-the-earth guys. And, uh, yeah, I, I almost kind of likened myself, like, even, like, living with Nicholas Anderson. Like, mm -hmm. loved European guys because they have a really cool way about them. And Ivan and I, yeah, like two brothers, <clears throat> two peas in a pod. And uh, <clears throat> did a lot of training together, a lot of drinking beer, and the story is spot on. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, for people, obviously this is just an audio podcast, but I was watching Dave as I was telling the story, and you, you, I could tell that his, his uh, story was accurate, ju judging by how you were laughing, so...
Oh, I was, I was wiping tears. I'm sure you want, I was wiping tears with my eyes. I was laughing so hard. I just, and, uh, you know, I'll carry that story a little further where, um, yeah, we were, we, and of course, as soon as we got the phone, we called Nicholas Anderson in Sweden and <laughs> just all long distance calls. And yeah, we peeled out of that park. And, like, I loved my grand national. That was, uh, that was my baby. No, there was no jerk custom made plate. <laughs> I, I, I I may be boisterous and and I don't know proud, but I, I hope I don't come across as arrogant or or uh, somebody would, that would have a vanity plate. No, not at all. It might have been him, uh, you know, trying to add to the story. I don't know, but you don't seem the type. But you know, especially if it was a New York plate, if it was a plate from your time in Utica, if you had the New York plate, that has to stand out like a sore thumb in Edmonton. Yo, without a doubt, and this is like a Grand National. I don't know if you know the make and model, but a highly sought after uh, cherished car that was built for only a few years. Fastest car built in North America, mm-hmm. jet black, and my windows were jet black. You couldn't even, even the windshield was tinted. Mm-hmm. You could see in or out of this car, and uh, so it was very recognizable for sure. And yeah, we peeled out of that parking lot, went downtown. And uh, I know we might even went home and just got showered up and cleaned up and went downtown, sat on a patio making all these phone calls and drinking and drinking. And uh, so a couple weeks later, <clears throat> a cop calls my mom and dad's house and I answer it. And he's like, well, is Dave there? And I'm like, yeah, speaking. And he's like, this is so-and-so constable. And, and he's like, uh, do you have the phone? I'm like, yep. Yeah. I was like, yeah, like, I, I didn't care by then, like, but mm-hmm. good thing to me now, like, and he's like, well, you guys rang up a bill and, you know, we want reimbursement. And I'm like, I'm not giving you any money. You lost the phone, like, too bad. Right. And he tried playing the card, like, well, we found out that you're a pro, pro hockey player. You're probably looking to go back and cross the border. Like, you, this could mean a lot of trouble for you and getting back to the States and we could hold you here. And so he tried playing that card mm-hmm. and me <clears throat> didn't really rattle me i was like ah you know it's it's just a phone man <laughs> what are you gonna charge me with possession of a 50 dollar <laughs> not that big of a deal so <clears throat> been in worse trouble that's yeah. for sure mm-hmm. <laughs> so they came by and they picked up the phone and you know that the other thing too is we know this too is that you're right i even said it like they probably weren't supposed to be golfing. Mm-hmm. They probably got their balls busted more than us over losing the phone, over the phone bill that came to the department. And they're going, what is, what is this about? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they came back in a threatening way. And I think about a week later, I was outside with my dad and I, I felt very proud of my dad mm-hmm. at that, uh, that moment in, in time. Cause the dad, the guy called my dad and kind of gave my dad the story. And he's like, you know, this could cause your son a lot of trouble and blah, blah. And my dad had heard enough. Like mm-hmm. my dad, very humble, quiet guy. And if police were involved, he, he's going to hear him out. He's not yeah. going to look back. Mm-hmm. And my dad finally just said, boys will be boys. And he hung the phone up on the cop. And I was like, <laughs> dad, that's awesome. Like, <laughs> that you got my back and it's like you don't care either it's not that big of a deal so i thought my dad might have reacted differently Mm. 
no smart enough son and he knew better but it was just kind of like okay enough's enough i've got your story yeah there pal so kind of respectful of what dad i remember too about that was your sister a cop yeah she's 25 years she's retired so is her husband was she a cop at the time good you know what good question i'd have mm-hmm. to like almost ask her and say put it back to the year it was mm-hmm. and when it started so that's got to be the summer of 92 Pro, uh 92 91 or 90 yeah so early 90s okay so 92 let's go forward and go if she's a police officer and she did 25 years so 92 to 2002 to 2012 to 22 so she hasn't been retired that long. i know she might have been just trying out and going through the process yeah and that's what he said she may have been training at the time so that's right so pretty close to it all right well when we uh when we hang up here, Ivan is the one who wanted me to uh, get your number and uh, and for me to give you his. So uh, so that's the story. I hope it lived up to the billing I gave it. And, you know, he's ranting and raving about his wedding there. I thought he might even include the story of uh, <laughs> we'll have a bachelor party for him in Edmonton at a bar. Yeah, he didn't include this one, so uh, feel free. And talking about tough guys. Uh, do you remember the ex Edmonton Oilers playing Kate Brennan is Mike Ware? Absolutely. Yep. Mike's a big boy. Yes, he is. Six five, big boy. So we go out, yeah, and we go to a golf course. There's probably only about ten of us. We've got a few carts and stuff like that. Finish up the round. Obviously, we've had a few beer, and uh, Mike and I get into it at the golf course. No shit. And start wrestling. Just play wrestling. Oh, okay, okay. Turn serious. Oh. <laughs> and we are throwing each other around outside, man. And and we're just going to town. And finally, he catches me with, a, while we're on the ground, either a knee or an elbow in my eye. And puts a giant mouse. And I'm, I think I'm... I'm not sure if I'm in the wedding party. I think I'm in the wedding party. Mm-hmm. Now I got to go to this wedding with a massive boot <laughs> egg in my head. And, you know, Mike's got, he's got marks on his neck and his ears and we're beat to piss. And we got to still go show up at this wedding and go look professional. And we didn't look very professional that day. We were by the end of it. So the funny part to that story. Yeah. Oh, that's a great part. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how we really follow that up, but I guess we'll, we'll go back to when you actually played for Halifax, uh, first fight of the year. We already discussed this guy. I told you what a big fan I am of him. And he later became your teammate. Uh, what the toe to toe, I think your highlight fight. Some of these fights are highlight fights. Probably this one and Kimby are, are the two best ones you're going against Mark LaBelle. Uh, what do you remember about that fight and talk about Beller as a teammate? Yeah, Beller, Beller was young. I think he's just kind of breaking into the league at that point in time, right? So didn't know much about him, didn't know what to expect in the fight. Definitely, we both got off to good starts and continued and, you know, a really, really good exchange, good fight, good good toe-to-toe battle for sure. Um, yeah, and, and I went back to Cincinnati last year. Mm-hmm. For a very, very interesting uh, hockey tournament and uh, alumni Cincinnati Cyclone get together. Mm-hmm. So I did see, I did see Bellard again last mm-hmm. summer. 
my wife and I, we had so much fun. We're going back again. Excellent. So yeah, Beller was, uh, he was just a meat and potatoes guy, right? Just, uh, built like a brick shit house, as they say. And he was tough. Like by the time Cincinnati had come around and we were teammates, he was, he was a well-versed in the fight game and he knew how to throw both hands and he was a competitor. So definitely a great teammate. You know, we had a lot of good guys back in the minors and all the guys just trying to do the same thing, right. And try to survive and make a living and provide for families. And so guys were, they were humble and they were hardworking guys. And Mark was one of them. Yeah. I reached out to Beller, but I never heard back. You're not on Facebook. His whole Facebook feed is filled with him. He kills hunts coyotes and stuff it's actually pretty interesting every uh every you know people are posting stuff on facebook uh different things and and his whole feed are these coyotes that he's just destroying uh, so i don't even know if he's getting a signal where he is right now but uh, but i did try to reach out to him but uh but i never heard back and then i saw that he did post more kills so uh so uh, hopefully uh if i hear from him before uh we finish this maybe i could read it but uh no i love him and that fight was unbelievable i i highly recommend people go and check that out if if they've never seen it before um so, yeah go ahead and talking to Mark last year, like I'm surprised on his Facebook, there's a whole lot more about kind of the woodwork he does, like yes. he's with the trees and stuff. And it's it's pretty cool asking him a lot of questions about that and some of the special woodwork that comes out of the trees he takes down. It's it's quite a uh, it's quite an event, right? Like the, the certificates that he has and the the titles he's got to get to like take these specific trees because they're quite rare. And what the wood is used for is pretty special uh, things. It's pretty neat. it's pretty neat. Projects. I'm always I'm always fascinated when people do stuff that I can't even figure out in my head. Like me, that's something that just blows my mind. And to me, I would find it fascinating because I can't wrap my head around doing something like that. So to me, it it may as well be, you know, engineering, physics, chemistry all wrapped into one because I my brain doesn't work that way. And when you see stuff like that, it's like it's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it was it was pretty neat. I did. Obviously, when you reconnect with teammates, no idea what their lives have been like for 15, 20 years. And it's interesting to find these things out and see where their lives have gone. So you're with Halifax. You get called up to Quebec. Uh, another thing, if you want to look it up on YouTube, how uh, Dave got called up, he replaced the bird dog, Greg Smith, who was uh, suspended for uh, there was a little melee in Quebec against Detroit. And one of the things Bird did was uh, punch Kevin Miller on the bench. So Quebec needed a defenseman, and obviously I would think you would have been the first choice to get called up. And uh, you get called up just in time for a home-and-home against Montreal Canadiens. So I guess I have to ask, because even though you were there for a short time, uh, Quebec-Montreal, one of the all-time great rivalries back when there were rivalries in sports. And um, even though you were just there for a short time, could you feel the difference in, in that that two game series just between maybe the fans or the electricity or the media, just the kind of attention the Nordiques versus Canadians got? Yeah, absolutely, and it, and it was such a big deal to me because it was going to be on Hockey Night in Canada. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, yeah. mom road east. I call him. Hey, I'm in the lineup tonight. Blah blah blah. And, you probably don't see the game sheet. You're probably looking for fights, but within the first five minutes, I think it might've been my first shift of the game. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a three on two. And I, I went to like, 
uh, hit Brent Kilcrest mm-hmm. out of the way, and so I could go play the other side with another forward on the on the team charging the net, and he falls face first into the crossbar, mm-hmm. blows his mouth up, and I know Lyle Odeline's trying to get to me because he thought I did something dirty, and I was just all I was doing was just clearing him to try to get to another player. Mm-hmm. And I got, and you know, dad sitting down, he's got his beer, he's, <laughs> and I'm kicked out in three and a half minutes, and he was so mad. And I'm like, dad, I, I didn't even mean to, like, of course I wanted to play in the game. And I was like, yeah, I was very, it was very disappointing. The atmosphere, you're playing in Montreal Forum, and I was excited, and it was a big deal. And that got <laughs> totally ripped away from me, and I, in a matter of seconds. Yeah, I think it was uh, uh, just under the six-minute mark in games when that happened. So uh, I guess, you know, it, you could equate it to anyone old enough to, uh, oh, Mike Tyson is fighting. You knew you had to be there in the beginning because if you went to take a piss or get a beer, by the time you got back, it was over. You missed it. So this would have been your uh, your time in your first game with Quebec. Yeah, no doubt. Very disappointing. It was. It really was. And and now the next night was interesting. Uh, I guess that was when Odeline, uh, you and him got uh, two minutes for roughing. I guess he was doing his job, figuring you might have done it on purpose. Uh, nothing, uh, nothing developed from that. But at the end of this game, it looked like um, it, it could have really developed into something messy with both teams on the ice. And when I watched the, the footage, it looked like it was Odeline and Scott Pearson. They were having words. But at that point, people are on the ice now. And it could have got real ugly in a hurry. I don't know if and you were there. I don't know if you remember what uh, what started that or anything like that, if you remember that incident. Yeah, and I don't. And you know what? I could have been making my way down from the press box down. So I'm No, even... this was the second night where you didn't get kicked out. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. I'm trying to think what happened on the ice then. It, it, it nothing really happened. It just looked like the the whistle blew. Teams were coming out. You're going to see your goalie. They're going to see his goalie. And it just looked like Odie and and Pearson were having words. And, and nothing really developed. It, it kind of for about five seconds. It looked like it could have been a powder keg. But then every, everybody just went their own separate way. Yeah, it's funny too. Like <clears throat> I'm sure Montreal must have clobbered us because we were so. <laughs> but and maybe that's why there wasn't any fireworks. It maybe wasn't a close game, but. At the same time, like, there was, like, after every whistle in those games, there was pushing and shoving and words exchanged, and, like, nothing was easy. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody, like, was willing to put down their guns kind of thing. So those games were very long and drawn out. And I can't imagine the abuse and the work that the linesmen had to do mm-hmm. to separate guys just from chirping each other. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a job those guys had. What a tough, tough job they had back then. Now, you, you got called up for these two games. You get called to back up later in the year, at the end of the year. Uh, a couple of players I want to ask you about. Um, we mentioned before talking about Troy Crowder and how maybe he didn't have the right mindset uh, to do the job, you know, be the enforcer. It wasn't really in his nature. And you played with a guy in Quebec that is a complete 180 that actually lives for it and, and loves the battle. Uh, what's it like being a teammate with Tony Twist? Yeah, Twister was, uh, you know, he's an iconic name when you talk about heavyweights, right? Yeah. Uh, I remember it's kind of funny. We we're talking about the the fights in pre preseason there in Quebec, <clears throat> and I can't remember who he was fighting. 
But, you know, when Tony let his right arm go, you know, it was nothing but nasty. And he actually cracked the guy's helmet in half. That's Kirk Tomlinson with uh, Detroit. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, we got a hold of the helmet. We were like, holy jeez, man. Like, that is, because our trainers got a hold of it, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Anyways, we saw the helmet firsthand, and we were like, man, that's that's beyond impressive, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which are both even a little bit different than, than they are now. So, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Tony was a feared fighter, right? He, I mean, he's a, he was a big guy, and he definitely threw bombs. <clears throat> so when he stepped on the ice, he knew where he was. Yeah. Sure. I, got, I know I got called up that. Uh, that was after the, was that the lockout year or the strike year? This was, well, the lockout year was a few years later. This, I don't think, was either. This was just, a, this was not, this was a full season. Yeah, I, th- I thought there was an interruption, though. I don't think, not this year. <laughs> because cause we were done in Halifax, and I got called up. But I thought there was a longer NHL break that caused me to, like, I, thought, I think I was almost ready to go home. And I, I don't. I don't think it was this season because this was the 75th anniversary year. I think I, I not that my memory is great, but I don't remember there being in, any interruption this year. Okay, my so it must have been just after we had done in in Halifax. Yeah, and they, mm-hmm. I might been for like a week or something like that. Who knows? A good. I think the call was a little bit surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I do remember playing in the Boston Gardens there, and Lyndon Byers was on the ice. Yep, and him and it was a neutral zone faceoff. And he was against Van Dorp. Yep. And he was smacking Van Dorp's shin pad. And I'm like, Wayne, like, you better be ready, man. Like, <laughs> I'm looking at it and I'm going, maybe, you know, because maybe Wayne doesn't do it. Maybe I'm fighting him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm like, okay, Lyndon's a guy that's going to got to be ready to handle. And Wayne wasn't. Lyndon dropped his gloves and got the jump on him and just beat him. Yeah. And I'll, Man, Wayne, you should have known better. You, you've been in this game too long to take lightly a challenge from Linden, and it cost him that game. I do remember that. This is a selfish one. I want to know, and I know you know. Growing up an Islander fan during the dynasty years, uh, you shared a locker room with John Tonelli. Uh, do you remember uh, anything about just John? Like I love John Tonelli. Like Islander fans, he's 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 not overlooked he's never really mentioned with the big four that we have but he's always in that second tier and just uh about hard worker i think i heard Stu grimson say that was his favorite player growing up was john tonelli and you're, you're sitting in a locker room with some, some really good players and one of them is a guy with four stanley cup rings yeah and obviously he's not a guy that had to say much right right quiet leader he's been, been there done that so what does he need to say he just went out there and played his game and you followed his example because still a warrior in the corners and in front of the net and doing all the things that he needed to do to be successful and his team successful, make his team successful. So yeah, he was just, I just remember him being a very quiet leader mm-hmm. <clears throat> doing everything right. So to speak, being that consummate professional that you would expect a guy that's won four cups to, to be like on the ice and in the dressing room. So after the, the home and home in Montreal, you went back down to Halifax uh, and, and you know, talking about the rivalries again with the, um, 
the, the you know Halifax and Moncton, the Maritimes, you know, those were rivals. Even if the NHL teams weren't rivals, you had the geographical rivalry, and one of the teams uh, was Moncton. And uh, they had a player named Tyler Larder, who you roughed up a bit. And uh, Craig Martin didn't seem too happy about it. And then a few weeks later, uh, you guys actually uh, had a fight. The, I think the incident with Larder happened in Halifax, and then the fight happened in Moncton. I don't know if you remember uh, remember fighting Martin. No, I, you know what I don't. I remember, like, I remember the names for yeah. sure. And I thought you were going to go down the road with, like, Greg Fleming, Jerry Fleming. Oh, I did. I I don't have you fighting him. Did you fight Big Jerry? I didn't, but he was definitely in Moncton at the time. Oh, he was Fredericton. He was Fred. Yeah, Freddie Beach. He was right? Freddie. Yeah. So you're right. Like that whole rivalry of you know St. John's, New Brunswick, St. John's, Newfoundland, mm-hmm. and Moncton. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember the incident uh, with those two individuals, though. I don't. I apologize. No, don't apologize. Listen, your memory's been amazing so far. Um, there's three more fights that I don't have video of, but fortunately I have a great picture of one of them, thanks to you. Uh, you had two fights against the Leafs, uh, Rob Pearson, who doesn't surprise me. Mike Eastwood surprises me a little bit. Uh, and then the picture you sent me, which is phenomenal, of uh, you fighting Ben Hankinson. Uh, what do, you, do you remember anything about those fights? <laughs> Obviously you landed one good one on Ben based on that picture, at least one, but uh, I don't know if you remember that fight too. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny the name. You, so it wasn't Scott Pearson? No, which, Scott was already, he was on in your organization. This was Rob. Rob Pearson. Now, was this in Newmarket? I'm, uh, I'm going to say I don't know because I don't have it on video. See, Mike, uh, the Pearson one, he was an aggressive player too, so it doesn't really surprise me. I'm wondering what Mike Eastwood must have done to get you angry because he's not a guy that was known for, for dropping the gloves at all. No, he he's not because I think I recall fighting the Pearson and he had a cast on his hand. Okay. And, man, he hit me with a punch and it was like kind of like rung my bell and I'm like, holy crap, I got to get a hold of this arm because I don't want to get hit with cast again. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so I do remember, I think I remember that fight because I, I'm pretty sure that was in Newmarket. Okay. Or me. Uh, St. John's. Or, yeah, well, St. John's or even one of their training facilities, like, uh, okay. like a preseason or, uh, exhibition game. Okay. Eastwood. Yeah. I don't recall because he was a pretty finesse guy. Yeah. But still a fair sized guy. Yeah. Pretty sure he's a right-handed shot. And, uh, you know what? Like. Even a guy like I know on my fight record there is like a guy like Bob Corkum. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know what? Guys that played back then had an edge. Yep. So when you went and ran into them, and my job was to make them all score, Mm -hmm. fearful of going into the corner with me, then my aggressiveness led to their response. Mm -hmm. And some that aggressiveness, you know what, you're in a, you're a one-on-one battle and eventually it, it tempers flare enough to where gloves get dropped and, you know, you're, you're swinging away. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that's probably all it was with Eastwood as well. And what about uh, Hankinson? Hank, well, Hankinson, I was, so, and I remember like even, uh, and you might be going down this road too, but uh, fights with Dean Melcock. Mm-hmm. So I was in Binghamton. No, no, hang on. Yeah, it would have been Binghamton. He would have been with Utica. Now, my, 
okay, when I fight Hankinson, am I in Halifax or yeah. Brampton? No, you're in Halifax. You're in Halley. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's the first time I'm back since I've been traded, right? Because okay. that is next year. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wanted to play well, and I it's kind of like one of those, you know, you guys want to let me go, well, I'll show you. Mm-hmm. And I swear to God, and I know Dean said this too uh, after the first fight we had, but I hit Ben Hankinson every punch I threw that fight, and he didn't hit me with one, and he had lumps and bumps all over his entire face when I was done with him that night. I... It was very one-sided. I'm surprised mm-hmm. he could go down. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to prove a point. And, yeah, I did. <laughs> point proven. There you go. Um, you get recalled by Quebec, like we mentioned. You get called up for the end of the season. You mentioned that game against Boston. You also played a very interesting home-and-home home against Buffalo. Uh, that first game in Quebec – that was a wild game. I don't know if you remember. Uh, that was a game where Tony Twist and Clip Malarchuk had words. And Malarchuk, you know, he, that guy's fearless. He actually reached to put take his gloves off. He put his mask on the on the top of the net. And the only reason why they didn't fight was because the linesman got in. But Clint was all ready to go with Twister. And then later in the game is the famous highlight where the fan jumped on the ice and Rob Ray beat the bag off him uh, in, in front of the Sabres bench. You, and then later on in the game, you and Ray each got two minutes for roughing. But that that game from start to finish, crazy. <laughs> yeah, quite quite a few memorable clips there, right? I yeah. mean, even a goaltender. And, and I don't know if you've ever had the chance to read any of Clint's books. But uh, uh, no, I oh, actually I think it, I think I read the first one. I think I did read the first one. Yeah, and I read. I'm not sure which one I read. I just read it probably. Uh, probably a good four or five years ago, but it really touched home. Like, man, oh, man, what a story, what a battle. And you think of PTSD nowadays, and he was back playing in 11 days yeah. or 15 days. It's it's almost unfathomable that he was back in that situation playing again after that tragic accident. It's, yeah. it's, it's mind-boggling. It really is. In today's world, man, yeah. that guy... Two and a half months, you're not going back on the ice, and are you mentally sound enough to go back on the ice? Yeah. So yeah, it was it was crazy, and especially with you know the, the fans jumping on there, and I think one of the linesmen trying to wrestle him down and get a, get away, and mm-hmm. Rob Ray doing his thing, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is actually happening. Is this this is actually happening? Because I think the only the last video of anything like that would be. In Buff in in Boston, when Asseltine, the yeah. rep, he decks that fan yeah. that's nice, like just flattens him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, railroaded him big time. And thing with Ray, I don't. I'm not a Rob Ray fan, so I there are very few fights where Rob Ray will have that I'll be rooting for him. But I'm like, this guy jumps on the ice. You don't know what he has on him. Like you got to grab a hold of him and take him down because you don't know. A guy could have a gun. He could have a knife. Who knows? You know, so I'm like, I, I was completely on Ray's side for that one. Yeah, you don't enter in, into that ring, so to speak, right. right? I mean, ring or rink, however you want to put it, but you just don't enter that. That's that's a sacred place. That's for the athletes themselves that are paid to do what they do. And you're right, like, there's been too, too many incidences and videos of guys flying into boxing rings or whatever, and you, 
you have no idea what's at stake there and when what they're carrying or what they're going to do right, right. Mm-hmm. yeah unstable people where there's enough unstable hockey players in the world <laughs> you know you don't want any more yeah he said wearing skates yeah and then the second night that was the back end of the home and home that was at the odd and uh unfortunately the camera didn't get there late but that's the night that you fought bob corkum and and before that fight they're sort of talking about christian rutu got leveled so i'm wondering was that you that laid out christian rutu and is that why corkum uh maybe wanted to fight you Oh, you know what? I don't know about the hit about Rutu. Uh, don't recollect that, but <clears throat> I know that like Bob was still a big straight. He was probably my height, six two, six three guy, and uh, it wasn't an easy battle. Like again, you got guys that are all that size that are goal scorers and are uh, wheeling around on the ice that can handle themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> like I said, I don't know if it was me running into him or payback for the hit, but. Right. I do remember, like, Bob was still still a guy, big and strong dude. Yeah, and those Sabres teams were always that way. They, You always had your, your front-line guys like Ray and May. Uh, Gord Donnelly was there. Uh, Barnaby was there. You always had those front-line, even, you know, Jay Wells, Dean Kennedy, those guys were there at times too. But even their second-tier guys, you know, Bob Corcoran's going to have a couple of fights a year. But, you know, they don't back down. So Buffalo always had those blue-collar teams. Yeah, without a doubt, they did. And uh, the odd was a tough, tough place to play. Uh, I, I just remember it being a shoebox, one of the smaller rinks in the in the league. And uh, I do remember specifically playing against Alexander Mulgilney. Mm. And literally the rink was too small. Yeah. Because he ran out of room. He was so fast, he couldn't even get up to full speed. Because it was a shoebox, and you got five, you got ten big guys on the ice, like closing him down, and it was really nice for me. Maybe not quite as fast as him. <laughs> he was slowed down by other people in his way. By the time he got to me as a one-on-one, because what what a talent! Oh yeah. my god, why? Yeah, you wonder about a guy like him playing in today's game with no with you know you could do two line passes. There's no clutching. There's no grabbing. Uh, you know, you think about all the players back then like that, that what they would do today, it would be like mind boggling. Totally, totally. Pavel Burries of the world, right? Mm-hmm. 